Hey, 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 everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Please don't forget to listen to this show. It's a great one. And to go by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Please, please, we need your support to do the work that we do. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. First caller wanted to know, hey, Steph, what do you think of reincarnation, the law of eternal recurrence, and some sort of fragmented disco ball god who shatters himself into eternity and then tries to gather himself back together? And we had a little bit of a conversation about that, and then, well, we tripwired a significant rant for me at the end. Second caller wanted to know, Steph, why do you think that love is not the highest virtue? Why do you keep talking about courage as the highest virtue? And do you know what? She totally changed my mind. It was a great, great conversation. The third caller is a black conservative who is uh, having trouble having children, and she's close to 40. Is it too late? And she also talks about the loneliness of being a black conservative, which is something not to be underestimated. The fourth caller wanted to know, how on earth do you teach philosophy to three-year-olds and five-year-olds? And we had a great conversation about that, as well as school and knowing what the heck is going into your children's minds. Fifth caller, a great woman who wanted to know, if feminism is not about what women want, is it not utterly worthless, especially to women? I think that's far too kind and charitable, and charitable an interpretation of feminism as a whole. So we had a great conversation about that. And the sixth caller, ooh, that's a strap yourself in kind of call. It's a man who says, I've been with this woman for a long time. I don't want to have kids. She does. What should we do? And then I invited her in on the conversation after we chatted about things for a while and found out that the story was very, very different from what he had told me. Rashomon style, different perspectives. Hey, maybe it's the disco god back in the saddle again. A great, great call. Very instructive. Just be patient with that one, I beg you. So again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. It's Stefan Molyneux. Use the affiliate link fdrurl.com slash Amazon and freedomainradio.com slash donate. All right. Well, up first tonight, we have James. James wrote in and said, given that energy cannot be created or destroyed, does it not make sense that our essence or soul continues after our physical death and can reincarnate to continue the necessary learning process to advance our understanding of the universe and what might be outside it? In short, do you believe in reincarnation? And would you please elaborate on why you do or do not? That's from James. So, I mean, before I just want to sort of understand where you're coming from here, because it seems like you're making a case for reincarnation. You know, energy can't be created or destroyed. Um, And so you would, I guess you're putting the soul in the category of energy. uh, And therefore, since it can't be created or destroyed, it must be eternal. Um, And also, you seem to say that there's a necessary learning process that occurs in the universe. I wonder if you could just elaborate on those two ideas first. Thank you. Okay. Basically, um, because, you know, as you've said in a lot of your videos, you know, as philosophy is important because, you know, having ethical standards uh, ultimately makes, you know, life life better and is kind of makes it a, a more, you know, uh, and basically a more worthwhile process for all of us. So, I guess what I imagine at least um life to be is essentially a um a school that essentially we all attend in order to develop that uh to develop a, st- a standard of ethics and to develop uh, essentially I guess a a state of fearlessness so that you can uh 
take on take on I guess experiences without uh, backing down, and then also uh, also learn to have compassion for all living things, um, which ultimately I think is a graduation process that continues, uh, where basically you are you're giving more given more and more energy or more power um, through an incarnation to do more. Um, and then basically recombining with, um, <laughs> whatever the source of everything is, um, and then maybe possibly starting the whole process all over again. So, so basically, yes, I am making a case that there's, I think there's a good chance that that is why we're all here. Uh, that's why we essentially suffer or at least experience suffering. And, and I guess, yeah, I, I hopefully does that, does that kind of, uh, pointed out a little bit better or it, yeah it's one of these answers that raises many more questions than than it, it answers definitely. so to speak so is it is, is is this directed by a god this this learning this eternal recurrence uh, i guess the way i see it is a source or god whatever however you'd want to see it i don't see god as i guess um a, a single man you know a white beard but as rather uh the source of all energy maybe even the higher higher being of all of ourselves. So essentially, I imagine God uh, being everything, all powerful, uh, became bored one day essentially and decided to split himself up uh, into trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces, and then um, and essentially uh, go through, or I guess, forget that he is God, and then go through a process of relearning that he is. Um, until he does once again, and I guess you could call that the universe. And then he once again relearns that, you know, after probably trillions and trillions of years, possibly that he is God, uh, recombining all of his trillions of pieces, which I would consider us cells, you know, animals. Basically, we all combine once again, realize that we are the source, um, and then and then after enjoying that for a while you know after however long you know it took to to get back to that point he then redoes the redoes it and then just basically experience himself completely um uh yeah basically to just uh basically just do something rather than just be all powerful because i imagine that would get boring you know after you know after some time so yeah basically yeah there there is a god we are all god and we are essentially um, just pieces or fragments of it that are relearning that experience, and and we go through this process called life or incarnations uh, until we recombine. And All right, then, I got um, it. I got it. Yeah. So, is this something that you have uh, come come up with, or is this something that you've read? This hypothesis. Um, you, I think I've I've come across it. Um, I think I've come across it in different ways. Um, I think. It, uh, not, nothing that says it quite uh, exactly as I'm saying it right now, but in different ways, essentially, that, yes, basically, yeah, basically, this that's, uh, you know, why we reincarnate. And, and I guess I kind of maybe kind of added a little bit of my own, <laughs> my own uh, flavor in there to try to get to that point of, you know, why are we here? You know, what is our purpose? Uh, where did we come from? Right, right. And how old were you when you first began thinking about this stuff? Oh, uh, I, I honestly, uh, pretty young, um, uh, probably t between ten and twelve. But it didn't really come to fruition, I'd say, until I started having lucid dreams, um, probably in my late teens, where essentially I'd wake up in my dream, realize I was dreaming, and then you know, when you wake up from that experience, it's it's kind of a 
it's kind of jaw dropping because you're like, well, where was I? How was I conscious inside this dream? Because, you know, as in a dream, you know, we could say, oh, it's some chemical process, you know, maybe just I'm yeah, reordering things in my brain. Okay, and so okay. Then I have you these, need to be a yeah. little bit more succinct. I just uh, need, need okay, like, okay. you can't give me the, the essays uh, every time I ask a question. Otherwise, I'm going to have to no, be no, thank rude you. and interrupt. And I what was, was your yeah. life like when you were 10 or, or 12, James? What was going on in your life, uh, good and bad? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, you know, essentially kind of growing up, um, you know, growing up in a large family, three younger sisters, an older brother, um, you know, playing soccer, you know, going to school, not necessarily feeling, I guess, you know, good things would be, you know, just, um, uh, I guess, having having fun with my family, bad things, not having fun with my family. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, maybe going through, I guess, anything that, you know, same kind of stuff anyone would go through, just, you know, so nothing unusual, nothing out of the ordinary. No, no, not really. And did you talk about these theories or ideas with your family? Uh, no, I did not. I didn't. I think I tried to, but it wouldn't be anything that uh, anyone would run with. So, so it wasn't anything that, uh, yeah, that I felt comfortable, I guess, talking about, you know, very often. So usually what I would, I would get it, you know, I would kind of be able to live through the process, you know, with certain movies that I enjoyed that seemed to cover certain things like that or, you know, or be interested in science and, you know, I guess well, things I, like that. I don't know that science really has come into much of what you're saying, but we'll get back to that. Okay. <laughs> and have okay. you uh, done any um, uh, any drugs or did you do any drugs during this or, or after, I guess, a little later than this time period or have you done sort of mind-altering substances uh, in, in your life? Yes. Late, well, later on in my late teens, uh, I did use cannabis and um and then i I've, I've i've tried mushrooms um and let's see let's see and then actually yeah that's that's and then there was a i don't know if you know what that is but it's it's a dmt which is essentially um dimethyltryptamine which is basically um i guess released when you dream um and so i've tried that once but that was that was way too strong so i guess really cannabis would be the only one that i've used um, that would fall into that, yeah, psychotropic, yeah, kind of mind-altering state. Right. So with the cannabis and with the mushrooms, what was your frequency of use uh, and how long did it go on for? Or is it still going on? Uh, no, it's not going on anymore. But it was, uh, it was, it was fairly often. Like it was, you know, at least once a week, you know, that I was using it because, uh, you know, being a musician and also kind of having those, you know, in that those kind of interests, it ended up kind of falling into that because there was kind of. Um, uh, what's the word? I guess basically a comfort in that, you know, in in that experience, to be honest. So uh, being a musician, you had to do drugs? Uh, no, no. I guess uh, what it really was, was uh, I was actually pretty, uh, I was pretty against drugs. I was a, I was a soccer player. And so I was really not into it. Uh, then I joined a band and um, a little bit of peer pressure, but, you know, obviously I make my own decisions. But anyway, a bit of peer pressure uh, ended up opening up that possibility, and I kind of uh, rolled with it. But your belief systems <laughs> and, would have also made you susceptible to this kind of experience, right? Because for you, there's another world out there beyond this world, which in some point. ways is more true, right? This disco ball exploding god that gets bored and disassembles himself and then later reassembles himself and then disassembles himself again when he gets bored and all that. So for you, there is a metaphysical, like the, the nature of reality is such that you, you don't have a sort of healthy brain that's processing reality 
in a normal way, just by using your senses, your reason and and evidence and mm-hmm. stuff. There is another realm out there that you can get access to through mind-altering substances. They're not messing with a healthy motor. They're opening up a more real and deep dimension. Is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yeah, actually, that is. That's an interesting way to put it as well. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the problems with metaphysics that may be problematic, is that once you define another world out there, a higher plane of existence, a platonic ideal, an exploding frag god uh, of, of infinite perspectives, well, y- you, you can go there. And, and it's not just that you're messing with your perceptions, it's that you're opening right, the doors of perception. Is that, is that Huxley? Anyways, it was what Jim Morrison, why, why he yes, named yes. the band The Doors, right? They go through the doors of perception. And this is why philosophy is so important. Because if you say, well, reason and evidence, evidence of the senses, that's your life working really well, that's your brain working really well, then anything which disturbs that process of accurately perceiving sensual reality, anything which disturbs that process is like taking a ball-peen hammer to your elbow. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. Elbow's working well. Take a ball-peen hammer to elbow, elbow not working well. And so drugs harm our perception uh, of the sensual world, of the empirical world. But if you believe that they're a tunnel through to a real higher reality, then they become a form of self-illumination rather than of self-harm. Does that make sense with your experience? Uh, I, I think so, actually. Yes, it does. Right. So whether it is a doorway to a higher realm or whether it is just screwing around with something that's working pretty well to begin with has to do with this question of this other reality. Now, the question is, what first gave you the idea of this higher reality? Where did it come from? And why was Um, it compelling? You understand you have an emotional attachment to this idea. Now, of course, you've, you know, the fallacy of sunk costs would say that after a decade, decade and a half or two decades, you don't have to tell me how old you are. But after you've made a whole bunch of life decisions, including taking mind altering drugs, because of a belief in this, you've got sunk costs, as they call it, right? Like, you've invested a lot and made some significant life decisions on the existence of this higher realm. And so you're invested, but there must be some reason at the beginning why you got this idea of the higher realm and why it resonated with you and excited you and sent you on this particular direction, if that makes sense. Uh, I think it does. And I guess I I would really just, uh, I guess the biggest, the reason was just uh, to understand what what we are, where we go and where we came from, just uh, because I guess religion didn't seem to do it for me. Um, I, I just, I didn't seem to resonate that, res- resonate with that, but essentially I, I did. I just wanted to know where, where did I come from? Because honestly, just physical, our physical bodies didn't seem like enough, um, uh, enough of an explanation of, of what we were. Okay. So you felt a sense of purpose was missing. A sense of meaning was missing. Yes. A, a larger story that you're a part of rather than a self-generated purpose, right? So something Absolutely. outside of yourself needed to give you purpose in order for you to have purpose. You couldn't generate it yourself. You couldn't generate meaning and purpose and efficacy and power within your own life. 
And so do you think that this came from an idea of religion, that religion gave you an idea that you were part of a larger story, that you were imbued with purpose from a higher being, but it did not satisfy you when you got into your early teens, and therefore this idea gives you the same purpose and, of course, is a kind of religion, obviously, right? I mean, you've got a god. You can call it what you want, but it's a supernatural being. So do you think that religion may have made you more susceptible to this idea of this explodey disco god and this higher realm? I'd say so. You know, I'm not sure if uh, I'm not sure if I would have come to the conclusion of a god without having studied, you know, religions and and you know come across what they had, you know, what they had presented. And you know, ultimately, I guess I did kind of come to a conclusion that you know all religions seem to be right in in one way, you know, or another. You know, it's uh, I, I think I don't think one really hits the nail on the head, but uh, I think they all have a piece of it. Um, and I think, you know, that, yeah, so I guess I, I, I built from that. So what for you was more satisfying with this explanation? Um, I assume we're going to raise, you were raised Christian. Is that fair to say? Uh, you, you know, not, not, not strictly, but yeah, I guess that's, you know, we went to In church the, a few I mean, times. did you go to church? Did you guys, I mean, how did that? Uh, I think we went to church, you know, maybe, you know five times and i didn't really enjoy it very much and then i think okay, i'm just gonna have said, to ask you to lean in and cup oh, again because you're getting quiet so no thank you yeah so so did religion when you were growing up impose any obligations on you like did you have to go help the poor uh did you have to read to the blind did you have to tutor the ignorant was there anything in the religiosity within your family that gave you any obligations to society as a whole? Uh, no, no, it wasn't imposed upon me. No, I didn't ask if it was imposed upon you. Okay. But was, did your parents say, well, you know, we have to give to charity because religion, or we have to go man a soup kitchen because religion, or we have to take in strangers off the street because religion. Was there any obligation to serve society in any altruistic sense as a result of religion within your family? Uh, well, not as a result of religion, but my mom, you know, would definitely, you know, impart upon all of us that it was important to be a good person to, you know, to do good um, for others less fortunate, for sure. That did happen. Okay, but it was not in a religious context for her? No, no, not at all. Uh, so who was religious then? It was your father? Uh, well, I think it was really more, we went to church a few times, mostly because I think my parents wanted to attempt to go to church because that's what you did. But neither of my parents were really raised religiously. Um, and, and so I guess I, I don't think it was anything that they felt they needed to do. It was more like a sense of community that didn't end up really panning out from my understanding. I haven't really had too many conversations with them. I just remember going a few times, going to the, you know, the class with the other kids, uh, coming out, not really enjoying, you know, when I was actually sitting in the main, you know, in the main hall and listening to what was being said, just kind of thinking, well, this is really boring. So uh, there was really no push, yeah, push right. for religion like, like most And people. I'm sort of trying to understand. So you've got a sense of meaning and purpose out of this reincarnation hypothesis of yours, James. What uh, obligations yeah, yeah. has it 
given to you? What what obligations has, like for me, philosophy, uh, understanding that I'm good at philosophy, good at communicating philosophy, good at talking about philosophy, good at discussing philosophy, has given me an obligation to try and bring philosophy to the world, right? So my pursuit of meaning, my pursuit of virtue, my pursuit of truth has instilled in me a pretty basic training, you know, <laughs> yelling Southern um, training sergeant uh, on me to to sort of serve serve the world. And I'm curious, having this sense of meaning and purpose, what obligations, if any, has it given to you in the world as a whole? Um, I guess I would say um, <laughs> to maybe try to to try to uh, inform people that there is a strong possibility that um, this life that you're experiencing isn't the last one, probably isn't the first, and based on how you decide to live it will affect maybe your next incarnation, you know, as the Buddhists say, with karma, you know, a, a, a accruing good karma will make your next life better, uh, bad karma, you know, worse, or maybe be, you're suffering because you're paying back karma. I guess uh, the real reason, yeah, I wanted to call in was to maybe discuss that uh, because, yeah, essentially, I think it's a good thing. I think if we understood that as a race, or you know, as you know, as humans, we would essentially maybe uh, forego a lot of the the harm that we do to ourselves and All others. Right. And how because, uh, yeah. how many times a month or a year do you have this conversation with people, if if at all? And what kind of response oh, do you yeah. get? I would say, um, you know, I, I used to I used to live in Boulder, Colorado. So I'm sorry, I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh, but you know, stereotypes and cliches do amuse me. So sorry, go ahead. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. No, and you're exactly right. So when I was there, I, I had it a bit more than I do now. I'm in the UK now, but uh, it's it. I'd say when I did have it. Um, it, it'd be maybe 50, 50, uh, some people would be open to it. Some people, uh, would shut, shut it down. Um, which, which was fine. I never tried to force, force it upon anyone, mostly just to talk about it with people, you know, who, who were actually interested and, and some, I guess would kind of, you know, and, and how uh, often would know, these conversations occur? Uh, I'd say once a month, once a month. So the grand total of this obligation that this theology has given you, James, is once a month you can talk about something that you really like to talk about. Uh, I, I guess so you could put it Is that it way. safe to say there's not a lot of sacrifice or, or, or risk or courage that is required to pursue this higher meaning? Well, I think I think I could be more courageous and and try to do it more, but no, I haven't. I but haven't. There's had no requirement to. to do it. There's no, no obligation. There's no noblesse oblige. Like you've seen the shards of godhood floating in the higher universe, and therefore it is absolutely essential that you get people to believe in this, to accept it, to change their lives. It's kind of a self-serving yeah. story, right? It doesn't give you any kind of Socratic obligation to risk things by bringing truth to people in a world that so often hates, uh, hates or, or attacks the truth, right? Yeah, you know, and I guess, yeah, you could say it's, it's probably more of a hobby than, uh, than yeah, a job. I, <laughs> yeah, so sure. where's the meaning? If you don't, like, if you've, if you've got access to truth and you believe that this is true and it's essential and it helps the world and it's really important for people, then aren't you just kind of whistling and strolling by an entire lagoon full of drowning people and not really wanting to get your loafers wet? Uh, you know what? I've actually I've thought of that quite a few times, and I I I think in some ways, yes, I am doing that, and that's probably out of my own fear 
of tripping up over myself as I try to explain and then basically looking stupid. So um, I, I do shy away from that quite a bit. And yeah, I do kind of feel like I am not uh, fulfilling, fulfilling my purpose um, most of the time. Absolutely. Because and I get meaning it. is obligation. Purpose is obligation. And people I know, the hackles around the world are going up when I say this, too bad, deal with it or turn me off. If you have the truth, guess what? You're obligated. If you have a fact, particularly if those facts or that truth or those arguments have an effect on the moral character of the world, on people's moral choices, on their happiness, on the spread of virtue in the world, you are obligated. Listen, if you're growing a plant that cures leukemia, you don't get to stay home that much. Sorry, you got to get your plant, you got to put it in a bag, and you got to go to the hospital. Because you have something powerful that cures. You can't just keep it for yourself. You can't just have a big bag of it in the basement saying, well, I guess if I ever get leukemia, I'm okay. No. Once you have the truth, you have an obligation. Except, James, you have a truth that has no obligation. You have a truth that you consider powerful and that you consider essential and necessary to human virtue. The truth is we live forever. The truth that you say is that we come back to life. The truth is that the quality of our existence now, the compassion we generate, the courage we have in the fight determines how we reincarnate, what we come back with. If you keep on this way, with this powerful truth in your breast, this world-shaking, life-changing, moral-enhancing truth, and you just have fairly indifferent conversations with it a couple of times a year, what are you coming back as? That's a really good point. That's an excellent point. And honestly, um, you know, maybe that, maybe there's part of me that wanted to call in to, to hear that, you know. Um, and so yeah, I, I can't argue, yeah, argue that at all because I do, I have to agree with you and it definitely on a soul level, you know, I think I've kind of tried to have that, that same conversation with myself uh, about maybe not trying hard enough to at least convey what I do believe. So, um, yeah, so far, I, it seems to have given you a rather self-serving sense of purpose that carries with it no obligation other than to smoke a couple of doobies once in a while. You know, that okay. that is not a very uh, soul-scarring, searing, warring, requires infinite amounts of quasi-Aristotelian courage in order to pursue. My religion is, well, it gives me a vague sense of purpose, doesn't give me any obligations in the world, and I get to smoke pot. Hmm. Not the most challenging belief system in the world. But let me ask you this, James. Okay. How do you know this is true? Any of this, what you're arguing for? Okay. Uh, I guess I guess the only way that I, I guess there, there does seem to be some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of science behind it. I don't, I'm not sure if you were able to look at the link that I had sent you when I had sent my question in. Uh, but basically, there is a link to um, to uh, this webpage um, kind of talking about Dr. Ian Stevenson's work. And he had gone through and basically interviewed a lot of children. And he was actually, he was, you know, a scientist, um, you know, and had published many papers before he became interested in incarnation. I think he was a psychologist of some sort. Anyway, he discovered that a lot of children uh, before the age of, you know, before the age of five or six were, would tell stories of past lives. And, and when he actually gave them, um, his attention, he, he was able to find a lot of these things. Like, uh, he would, they would talk about, a you know, being a certain person or being of a family. And then he would do the research about the, the people they were talking about, find them, and then find that there was consistencies, uh, in ways that these children, children shouldn't have known, whether it was from distance 
um, or, you know, or, or a lot of different factors. So basically he, you know, being a skeptic himself, he was able to go through and find that a lot of these children would somehow remember experiences from different people that had already passed on. Um, and then have certain things like, like birthmarks from, you know, where that, uh, that person had been killed. Uh, now in this life, they now have a birthmark, you know, in that same place where that person was, you know, you know, uh, you know, stabbed or something like that. So he, he was I'm actually, sorry, what was, to, uh, what was the guy's name again? Uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson. Or Steven, Steven, Stevenson, yes. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, so he, uh, yeah, essentially he, he's gone through a lot of these cases, and I guess he found uh, a lot of them in India. And, you know, a lot of skeptics would say, well, you know, you're, you're, you're probably going through a lot of fraud. And he, he would agree, you know, he would agree that there probably is quite a bit of fraud that's, that's happening where people want to be, you know, people want to say, I, I was Cleopatra, blah, blah, blah. But he would actually go through and, and find that, you know, even if there were 80% of these were actually uh, fraud, the other 20%, you know, are important enough, you know, to be like, well, this deviation, that's, you know, means that we have something here. This means something. And so I guess, you know, there, there was even certain cases um, from another, another doctor, and this one's less verified, but I think it's interesting. It was Dr. Lash uh, near Syria, I guess, had uh, – there was a boy who remembered being killed. He remembered where he was buried. He remembered where the weapon was buried. He apparently, you know, he took the the town elders to where his body was buried. Found out, you know, found they they found a body buried. Then they found a weapon, and then he even knew who had killed him. And then they and then they faced uh, uh, they faced the the perpetrator. And then he broke down and basically said that he had done it. Uh, this is in a book somewhere. I I can't verify it because you know, I don't know how don't know how. But I guess it gives the i it kind of gives um. A little uh, uh, piece of how this this could possibly be occurring, and essentially, yeah, w- how how to verify it. So, if that is true, that means that we do reincarnate, or at least some souls reincarnate. And if some souls reincarnate, you know, why do they? Um, and if you know, I guess if any of them reincarnate, that shows that it's possible, um, which I think you know lends to the to the possibility that yes, that's what we're what we do. When we, uh, when we basically, when we exist, you know, we, we don't just live, you know, one, one life and then call it quits, you know, or, or, or disappear for that matter. But we continue to exist, uh, beyond our physical bodies and, and then, and then have other experiences afterwards. Right. Now, have you looked up any of the skeptical rebuttals to Stevenson's method? I, I I guess um, you know specifically I haven't gone through what, what's you know any any of his any of his um, yeah I guess it rebuttals to any of his actual information. No, I haven't gone through anything specific like that, dude. Though I have. What do you yeah. mean you haven't? Well, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh I, come I just, on. I guess. Come on. Well, it's because, you you can't you uh, can't say well I've now crossed over and I've accepted reincarnation and soul and past lives and disco gods and all of that. And I've and and one of the this Stevenson fellow, I haven't looked up any rebuttals to anything that he came up with. Well, I'll, I'll give you a few. I'll give you a few. Okay. But this shows confirmation bias, right? That this you want this to be true, and therefore oh, you've read I, some I, of this I, stuff, and he gave you that goosebump of confirmation bias. Ooh, it's got to be true. I'll, I'll agree with you there. Okay, yes, so yes. Um, just so people understand this, right? So he worked in translators, with translators in countries, and he didn't really know much about the countries. He certainly didn't understand the language. So, you know, 
asking anyone is, is tough enough, but asking children is particularly tricky, right? True. Uh, a quote, interviewer bias, bias is the central driving force in the creation of suggestive interviews, right? I don't know if you remember, I think it was in the 80s, there were supposed to be all of these satanic cults operating out of daycares, and they had kids who just, oh yeah, oh, this happened and that, and so, you know. So this is a a challenge, right? So questioning children and, 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 and adults via a translator is another level or another layer of, incertain, uh, of uncertainty. Most of his interviews took places in countries where reincarnation is an accepted belief, right? So this is not a null hypothesis uh, situation. So uh, there's something called the null hypothesis, right? What is, what is the null hypothesis of this? So he said, well, I want to go out and find these past life experience stories and confirm them. And so let's say he got rumors or heard about a past life experience story and could not confirm it. So there was, and what does that mean? Does that mean it's false? No, it just means he goes on to the next one and he collects a whole bunch of them and says, ah, this is the case. So what could he ever experience or interview or what information could he gather that would disconfirm this reincarnation hypothesis? Well, nothing. And therefore there's no null hypothesis and therefore it is all confirmation bias, right? There is, of course, alternative non-paranormal explanations for uh, his his data, right? And so critics can say, well, children's fantasies like imaginary playmates and so on are to some degree shaped by parents and peers through questions and suggestions. Uh, they You hear as a kid, of course, stories about people who died or crimes in the village or things like that. So this can all um, be uh, reemerge during these kinds of, uh, of questions. And... Um, so this is um, is a problem, right? He he he's working with translators in cultures that already believe in reincarnation. He himself wants to believe that this is true, and children in, are generally very keen on pleasing authority figures, and so they're going to cough up information that's going to be in confirmation with what the authority uh, figures want. And um, what's the um, uh, what's the point? Uh, he he wanted this to be true. He went in and interviewed people, and then he wrote wrote it up, knowing very clearly we know that he wanted all of this to be true. And that is um, not a credible basis by which we can think that reincarnation is somehow proven. Uh, he himself admitted he hadn't provided compelling evidence for reincarnation, and... Um, that is uh, uh, that is important, right? So one of the things he noticed was that reincarnation stories tended to revolve around violent deaths rather than peaceful deaths. Well, because they leave more of a, an imprint in the psyche of the sort of collective psyche uh, of the family. Um, violent deaths are more likely to be reported in the media, retold in stories uh, across the, the sort of local region and so on. And so the chances that a child is going to hear about that kind of violent story uh, as opposed to uh, peaceful stories is is much um, much more likely that that's going to uh, to happen. And older children and adults, he found, generally forget what they reported uh, as as children, and so it is. Uh, it, this is, I mean, this is a crazy guy. It's a crazy hobby. This is nothing to do with scientific proof. Uh, and of course, he took a lot of mind altering drugs himself. And, um, well, that might have an impact on one's dedication to rational objectivity. So 
Um, but but of course, you wanted to believe it. He wanted to believe it. So this is not this is not why you believe, right? That you didn't sort of have a neutral opinion and be really really impressed with the Stevenson fellows' dedication to the scientific method. Um, you you wanted to believe, and so you grabbed something, you know, like a drowning belief, as like a drowning man just grabs at whatever it can to stay afloat. And so you grabbed at this stuff in order to confirm your own pre-existing beliefs. And that is a uh, uh, a real shame. Now, either because he didn't like where this is going or because he's got a bad connection, we have tragically lost the James. But I will tell you um, what I think about reincarnation. It's false. It's It's not even like maybe true. It's false. We do not have a soul. We do not come back to life. We are magic meat. <laughs> the only magic is consciousness, which we have yet to fully understand, and which we may, of course, never uh, fully understand. And um, so, no, I don't believe in reincarnation uh, at, at all. Uh, I don't have any memories of past lives. There's no evidence that people have any memories of past lives. There's anecdotes, which, you know, and there's children being questioned in foreign languages by guys who've done lots of drugs, and that's all nonsense. We can't possibly have that as a standard of belief. Now, why did we take this call? Why did I want to take this call? Well, for a number of reasons. Number one, I am sick and tired, so sick and goddamn tired of people masturbating their little belief systems that provide no obligation for them whatsoever. You know, the world is in a dangerous place. The world is kind of in a crisis right now. And people mucking about with, am I going to come back as a dung beetle or a phoenix is bullshit. Get off your ass, put down your bong, and do something to save the world because it bloody well needs it right now. I am sick and tired of this meism, this vague, kind of mystical, otherworldly, other reality. You don't have to help the poor. You don't have to tutor the ignorant. You don't have to heal the sick. You don't even have to shovel anyone's goddamn driveway. All you have to do is take a hit, listen to some Floyd, and think about crystals in another dimension that could be you in another life. In another set of circumstances. Oh, man. It's lazy. It's self-indulgent. It's boring. It's bullshit. And let me tell you something. When it comes up, when this meism, this flaccid, oh, I get meaning with no obligation. I get purpose with no action, with not actually having to do a goddamn thing. When this vague, fuzzy, cloudy, self-worshipping, self-excusing, do-nothing bullshit. When it runs up against a relatively muscular belief system like Islam, well, I don't think it's going to last very long at all. So I'm sick and tired of this stuff. Stop trying to get meaning from bullshit. Stop trying to get purpose from a cloud of marijuana smoke. For God's sakes, shake it off, people. Snap out of it. Shake it off. You know, you're inheriting freedoms from people who didn't get them by hitting the bong at every conceivable opportunity. What are you, Nick and freaks and geeks? For God's sakes. Stop air drumming. Stop staring at your lava lamps and listening to Moog synthesizers in the dark, for God's sakes. Wake up. Snap out of it. This is the life you have. Nothing else. Nothing else is coming. No afterlife. No resurrection. No reincarnation. No heaven. No hell. Nothing is coming. What you have is now. What you have is today. What you have is breath. In and out, and in, and out. And do you know what that means? I, that's two less 
that you have to live. It may be grains of sand on a beach. It may be logs in a pile. It may be four more you don't even know. You might have as many breaths left as legs of a spider. That's all you're going to get. All you're going to get is what you make, what you reason, what you think, and what you will. What you will. Nothing outside is going to bungee in and give you meaning. Nothing outside is going to bungee in and excuse you for pitifully wasting your life. Nothing and no one is coming to make everything better, to make it all right, to make it all work out for the best. You know who's coming? <laughs> Let me tell you who's coming. Who's coming is bad people who want to rule over you. And you can snort all the crap you want to short-circuit your brain, and you can stare at disco lights through a chandelier. It will not stop one bad person from putting his boot or heel on your fucking neck. Not one person will be stopped by your deluded fantasies of otherworldly escapism. It's cowardly. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. It's retarded. And I apologize for that. That is an insult to retarded people. So that's why I asked, how do you know any of this is true? And the answer is you don't. But it serves your distraction, and it serves your avoidance, and it serves your emptiness. It serves your laziness, and it serves your cowardice. You know, we're up here on the wall trying to save the world. You know what we need? We don't need people bullshitting about gods who disassemble themselves and then reassemble themselves in shards of bullshit. It's not what we need right now. What we need is hardy souls up here polishing the rhetorical weapons and handing us the intellectual ammo. That's what we need up here. Because the hordes are coming from within and from without. We need to fight. And I'm sick and tired of people masturbating these stupid fantasies and thinking that they're doing anything to help the world. All they're doing is excusing themselves for squandering the gifts that were handed to them by much, much tougher people. So shake it off, step out of the smoke, and help us on the wall, for God's sakes. All right, let's move on to the next caller. Up next, we have Heather. Heather wrote in and said... I believe I've heard you mention that courage is the highest virtue. I'm an evangelical Christian, and as such, I would like to make the case that, biblically speaking, love is the highest virtue. If you don't believe that love is the highest virtue, why? That's from Heather. Hey, Heather, how are you doing tonight? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. So, tell me about um, what the Bible says about love and the case for the higher virtue? Sure. Um, I think it's important to define the term because the New Testament was written in Greek and they have four words for love where we only have the one. So um, they have the word storge, which is sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, It's a love of kinship and natural affection for somebody or something. When we say, I love pizza or I love my dog, this is the one we're using. Uh, there's eros, which is an emotional, uh, an emotional love. Um, if you love somebody so much that you feel your your heart will explode, that would be eros, um, and it's platonic too. 
There is phileo, which is an intellectual love, which is a love that Jesus has for his church and the love that Christians are supposed to have for each other. And then there's agape, which is a love of the will. And it's not based on the merit of the one who is loved and it desires the highest good. And in uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul defines it for us, agape for us, um, saying it's patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. And that's a pretty daunting list, but that's how he defines it. So I would say that um, if you're looking through the lens of love at people, then you will, and you're desiring their highest good, then you must be, you must be courageous. You must speak the truth in love. And if you love God the way, you know, with that love too, then you must speak his truth uh, as well. All right. Is it hard to do that? Yes. And why? Why is it hard to do that? That's a pretty long list. Um, <laughs> you know, it's something that's definitely a work in progress. We have to keep trying to, or I have to keep trying to do that. Um, no, but why is it hard? Why is it hard to speak the truth in love? Right. Or why, yeah, is, why, it hard why to... is it hard to speak the truth? I'm not. I'm not oh. disagreeing with you. I mean, I know it's hard to speak. I'm just in your understanding or in your argument, Heather. How? Why is it hard to speak the truth? Oh, just it. it I mean, it's not much of a virtue of if it's com- easy, right? No, it certainly okay. is not, and and it definitely pushes me outside of my comfort zone to do that. Uh, but I have to. So uh, yes, yeah, no, it's hard because why because is it, you're going to. Why is it hard? What what, what are the well, what, what what's the opposition? What's the resistance? There's a fair amount of hostility towards hearing the truth from people, especially if it's including the fact that um, how they're living may not be right or what they're doing may be wrong or dangerous. Um, and to to be able to stand and say what you're doing is how you're living and what you're doing is wrong um, or could be better. Um, well, especially in this feel-good hedonistic planet of self-gratification, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, yes. the, the moment you tell people to curb their lusts, to curb their impulses, to manage their emotions, to think in the long term, to to not succumb to the hedonistic nerve tickling of the everyday uh, sensuality, well, you're just square. What, you don't like to have fun? You know, like all this kind of stuff, right? So, oh, exactly. Yeah, there is a lot of hostility exactly. towards speaking this this kind of love, right? Oh, definitely. And when you get to the idea that um, that the word agape is an act of the will and that we're supposed to apply that even to our enemies, um, that get, makes it even harder because they're, you know, sort of definitionally uh, unlovable, you know, in a, in a way. So it's um, it's very difficult to, to not only be able to say that to them and not only um, speak the truth to them, but to try to see them with God's eyes and you know through the eyes of love especially if they're doing something or being something that's very unlovable to um even want to tell them can be difficult uh, and to even want to have can you give me an example of a person that is agape 
would require you to to attempt to love, to to will the love for that person. Give me the most negative characteristics or behaviors or qualities that would be the very toughest to love under this dictum. Someone who's done something to my kids. That would be the hardest for me. Like a pedophile? Oh, yeah, that would be that would be um, one of those situations where I would say that the grace of God would have to help me through that one. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about that. So a man um, or a woman, but let's just say like a man who has raped your children, that mm-hmm. the challenge would be then for you to love that person? To love him with that kind of love, yes. Um, how would that be to- possible? It's it's possible because it's an act of the will. So I would want what was best for him, which would be that he would become saved. Um, I would not. Also, wanting what is best for him would mean that um, it it would be necessary for him to face justice too, because it's not good for somebody to do something awful like that. And and just so you would still turn him away. into the police. Oh yes, oh yes. You should not. You. Um, I think it's in. Uh, so oh, the police wouldn't wouldn't have wouldn't be able to love him. They would have to punish him, right? Uh, punishment is not um, does not is not antithetical to love. Um, God is a God of justice. Um, it says uh, three things are required of you, O oh man, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, um, absolving people from the consequences of their actions is not loving at all, not even a little bit. I mean, when my children do something wrong, I, you know, I. I require them to, I help them to do better. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I have kids that are pretty, pretty wonderful, so they don't require anything harsh. But sometimes if you do something really horrible, you have to face a really horrible consequence. And that's, that isn't, is. Isn't, isn't one of those consequences uh, that you go to hell, right? That, that you have committed an, a, a crime, a moral crime, so heinous. Uh, that certainly in the Catholic, as you know, there's a difference between a mortal and a venal sin. A venal sin you can atone for, right? A couple of Hail Marys and some clinks of coins somewhere. But the mortal sins uh, you cannot gain salvation I, from. I'm not Catholic. No, so, I, I understand um, that. But yep. there are sins, uh, other not, that uh, gu- guarantee you passage to hell, that for which you may not gain forgiveness from God. Uh, only blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And if you do that one, you are walking away and you don't want to fix it. But no. Um, oh, oh, so, so, okay, part- so there's one. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Okay. So there's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, at which point um, you, in, according to, I'm not saying everything that you believe, right? Because we just have to mm-hmm. go with the general idea. There's n- either no access to heaven, which can be the same as hell in some formulations. There is some form of limbo, uh, or there is uh, hell itself, right? So, yes. So, uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit means that the punishment is eternal. There is no real capacity for forgiveness or release, uh, unless, of course, you want to count, you know, the return of Jesus who goes down, lets everyone out of hell, and so on. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's kind of a forever punishment. So, in that situation... Um, love would seem to be antithetical to it, eternal punishment. Is that fair to say? Um, not really, no. Um, there are only two options for us 
um, we can love God or we can um, walk away from God. I mean, this is according to the Christian faith, obviously. That's all I can speak to in this one. Um, and our decision of what we're going to do while we're here is going to determine what's going to happen to us afterwards. If we don't love God, uh, if we don't want to be around Him, um, He's not going to to make us stay in His presence. Um, and this is so, not, this is not what I'm asking, though. Um, and unless you're taking a roundabout way to get what I'm asking at, in which case I apologize. Continue, but I'm, if 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 God will not forgive somebody who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then I'm not sure how loving your enemies is a virtue that we should ascribe to human beings if God at times won't forgive. God will not burden us with his presence for eternity if we don't want him. And to be with him when we've rejected him is... Uh, worse than being away from him. But because all good things have their source in God, because uh, he is light and love and hope and beauty and goodness, um, if we're not with him and we're away from him, we're away from all those things too. So, um, you know, part of, you know, what hell is in a lot of sense, in a sense is that we're separated from God because we decided to be separated from God and um, we're absent all of the good traits of God because he's... You no, know, I, understand, I understand all of that. I understand yeah. that. But my, my question is, if you go to hell for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven, which is a permanent sin, then even if you're sorry because you're in hell, God doesn't forgive you and let you into heaven, right? No, I don't think you would be sorry. I think if I think part of that one is if you get to the point where you do that, you just don't care anymore. If you are repentant of any at any of any sin, if you come back to God and you say, "I'm sorry, please forgive me, God," it says that that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we come back to Him, if we want to come back, we can. Um, We've got this this life to do it in, but if we want to come back, we can. No, but what about afterwards? What what if you afterwards you've done something terrible you go to hell you realize God is real you did bad things it's really painful it's horrible down there you're really really sorry and you really regret what it is that you did that that put you in hell what happens then I don't think you have the capacity to do that once you're there Okay so it's a one way ticket as far as that goes and there is no forgiveness after death is that right if you go to hell. There is there is no forgiveness because you will not want to. You will not want it. So you lose your free will after you die? Yeah, you do. Okay. In uh, that instance, not, not, not if you're going to heaven. But um, I think that all of the parts of you that were good are gone. It's just, you're just left. Okay, um, okay. Sort of- so all the parts of you that are good are gone. Therefore, you don't love. Right. Okay. So you don't love people who aren't virtuous or in whom all virtue is gone. Now? You mean right now? Or well, sure. are you talking about? Um, well, we can't tell that. I don't know by looking at somebody whether or not they all vestiges of virtue are gone. Um, I, I have no idea. 
Um, you know, certainly a lot of their behavior might indicate that, but I don't know that. I can't look into their soul. Right. Okay. So you have to love the potential for virtue uh, within them. But after yeah, they die, have... certainly God uh, will, there's no more free will, and therefore the punishment is permanent, right? I I think I... I'm not trying to catch you out here. I'm, I'm just trying no, to sort of map the ideas here. I, know, I understand. Uh, no, to say that there's no more free will would be wrong. I, I spoke, I misspoke on that. It's sure. that you will not want to. You won't want to. To be in God's presence well, well, um, hang on, would hang be on. terrible. Okay. You can't say that while someone's alive, you can't tell what they're going to do because they have free will. But then they still have free will after they die, but you can 100% tell what they're going to do. In this case, I think so. Um, how, whenever something, I mean, we got to be logical. At least try, right? This is a philosophy sure. show, right? Oh, we can't just absolutely. you're not the last caller. You can't just say stuff, right? So, <laughs> um, when um, whenever anybody's had a confrontation with God in the Bible, um, the the difference between themselves and God becomes very apparent. So when when Job um, meets with God. Um, and God just says, starts questioning him. He says, you know, gird yourself up like a man and I will question you. And he just begins this um, whole line of questioning that's very powerful. Where were you when I set the uh, the earth in, in motion? Where were you when I laid its foundations? Um, and he just goes on and on. And at the very end, um, Job, after being questioned by God, says, um, surely I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. I see myself for what I am, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. When um, Isaiah had in a confrontation with God, he, he he's brought into the throne room of God, and he sees God in all of his majesty, and just what he is just comes into sharp focus compared to the the perfection and the holiness of God. And it just, he says, woe is me, I'm an unclean man of unclean lips. Um, you know, when um, when the children of Israel are out in front of, um, at Mount Sinai, God starts to talk to them um, in his own voice. And, and they're terrified just because it's so overwhelming and so powerful that they say, please don't do this anymore. Um, send, you know, send Moses up. Um, when, when we are next to God, when we see him, when we're confronted with, you know, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, holy beings, um, and we're not covered by Jesus' blood, the, it's just too overwhelming. It, we would not be able to, it would be worse to be with him than to be away from him. It would be worse to be with him. All right. So let me ask you this, uh, Heather. And again, I'm not trying to play gotcha. Like, I, I'm genuinely curious, and I, I want to sort of understand this. Sure. Let's say that some guy says, my wife really loves me, but she set fire to me last night in, in my bed. We, we would be a little bit skeptical about that love, Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yep. because love has to have some actions that are correlated to to love, and and for that to be the case, we have to be able to empirically differentiate actions based on love versus actions based on indifference or anger or hatred. They have to be different in some manner. Oh, definitely. Okay. So if someone assaults your child. And you're really angry, then you're going to call the police. The police are going to come over. They're really mm -hmm. angry, let's say. And they haul him off to jail. The judge is really angry and gives him 20 years in prison, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, if exactly the same things happen, but you call it love, 
I'm not sure what that word means. In other words, if the actions, like if I, if I love someone, I'll give them a kiss. If I hate someone, I won't, right? That my actions change based on the feelings that I have, whether they're rational or not, right? But if exactly the same sequence happens to the child rapist, whether people hate him and are angry at him, or whether they love him in this erape kind of way, I'm not sure what it means to say that you love someone if your actions are identical to what they would be if you hated that person. You would desire their highest good. So through this all, you would you would want them to um, to come to know Jesus as their savior. Um, but that doesn't mean we are let off the hook from all the consequences to our actions. And that doesn't mean that I don't experience anger and have to manage it. I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. And um, not, aside from Eros, which is not really talked about, and I guess Storge, which is only mentioned as people not having it, um, none of these are really emotional loves. This is something that you choose to do. So I can choose to look at him and go, I am fuming with you. This is the emotion that I'm feeling. But I can decide that I will forgive you and I will um, allow you, I will, I will pray for you and, and talk to you about um, what it means to be a Christian. Um, okay, it, and but I'm, it's I'm a sorry, choice. Sorry to interrupt, but, so this question of forgiveness is very, very important. I mean, obviously, it's, it's foundational to, to a lot of the beliefs that you have and a lot of the beliefs that I have. We certainly share that in common. So let me let me just give you an, an example, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you. So um, many years ago, um, I was going to meet a friend of mine at a particular location. At, at 7 o'clock, we were going to go to a concert. And I went to the location, and he wasn't there, and he wasn't there, and he wasn't there. This is before cell phones. This is way back in the day. Right. So um, eventually, I, I, I called his house from a payphone, and he was home. And I said, well, where have you been? And he said, well, I came to meet you, but you weren't there. And I waited and I waited and I just eventually went home because you weren't there. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm here. I'm in the place. Anyway, so make a long story short, I pulled out the piece of paper and I'd written down the wrong intersection. You know, intersection is two streets. One of them was right. The other one was incorrect. So I was actually in the wrong place. Now, before I was angry at him because I thought that he had flaked on me or that he'd made a mistake. But then when I realized I had made the mistake, my anger dissolved and I was, I apologized like crazy because I'd messed up his chance to see at least the opening band in the concert we were going to, right? Mm-hmm. And so I moved from being upset with this person to, and, and feeling they were in my debt to apologizing to that person and feeling that I was in his debt because something something changed, right? I mean, you could say I forgave him or whatever, but you understand, right? I mean, yep, um, I do. or, you know, if, if he'd gotten to the wrong place and he's like, oh man, I'm totally sorry. And if it was like the first time, it wasn't like, you know, every other time that we tried to get together, something weird happened or whatever. So there's forgiveness that comes out of a, a change in circumstances, a change in behavior. And, you know, if, if, if you run a store and, and somebody steals, I don't know, a, a fruit salad from your grocery store or something. And, you know, they come back the next day and they're like, I'm really, really sorry. Um, you know, here's five times the price. Uh, I'm never going to do it again. You know, now here's my face. You know, you can watch me every time I'm in the store. I totally apologize. And blah, 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 blah. Well, then they've done something to earn 
being forgiven, right? I think that's fair restitution for what uh, what has gone on. And so there has to be some difference, I would say, between people who have done something to earn forgiveness from you versus people who, you know, continue to spit in your face, who say, oh, yeah, you know, I would do it again if I had a moment's chance, you know, sucks to be you, eh, hey, can't catch me, na 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 boo boo Those people, like, w- would you have a different response to, to those two people when it came to forgiveness, right? Somebody who genuinely was sorry and, and attempted to earn back your trust and so on versus somebody who, you know, was sneering at you and, and jeering you and, and saying they'd do it again if they could, could get a chance. I mean, because it seems to me to pay the person who is not sorry the same good, which is forgiveness, as the person who's genuinely contrite and wants to be forgiven and is doing necessary steps to be forgiven, to give them both forgiveness seems to me unjust because it's paying people with the same coin who are performing opposite actions. So it would depend on um, whether we're talking about God or whether we're talking about us. Um, you know, in, I think it's in, it's in one of the Gospels where um, one of, I think it's Peter that says to Jesus, um, you know, if, if someone sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive them? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Um, and we only have to go on what they say. Now, it's it's important to know that that forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries. I mean, part of, um, you know, part of love would be love always protects. So even if a pedophile had, um, you know, had, had asked for forgiveness from, from me, um, he still wouldn't be around my children. My first, my first job would be to protect them. Um, okay, so so sorry to interrupt. Them. So if somebody was a good okay. person to your children, you would love them for that virtue, and you would let them spend time with your children. If somebody was a bad person to your children, you would not let them spend time around your children. So you're treating someone differently that you love versus someone who's harmed your children. Now, there's a difference in action, but you're saying the same emotion should dominate, but the actions should be different. That's not an emotion. That's what I'm saying. It's that it's an act of the will. Um, I have. It, it's a decision and. There, there but are then you have, the act of your will is different because in one sorry to interrupt, but in one instance, the guy who's good to your kids gets to hang out with your kids, and the guy who's bad to your kids d- doesn't. So your act of will, in terms of what you're allowing, is opposite: access versus no access. That's right, but that's because my priorities um, are for the people who are innocent who need protecting over the person who does horrible things. Right. Just so because- your love of your children causes you to keep the bad person away from your children. So right. the love of your children takes precedence over your judgment of the bad actions of the bad person. Right. Okay, good. So you love your children, and so you spend time with them and you protect them, but the bad person you keep away from your children. So your actions are opposite. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the same for everybody. Um, you know, it... it empirically you're doing the opposite thing right you're protecting your children and keeping them close and then you're keeping this guy away you could say it's again to protect your children but to protect your children you keep them close keep them close to you whereas to protect your children you keep this other guy this nasty guy away from them right so your actions are the opposite but you're saying that the concept this agape is the same 
yes. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily one size fits all. Uh, you know, it, it if uh, there's there's just it's it's complex. It's a very complex thing. There's Let there's orders of priorities. Sure. If I mean, it's easier to keep the mean man away from your children if you don't like him because your emotions are like uncomplicated. He's toxic. He's a bad guy. He's a nasty guy. So I'm going to keep him away from my kids. So your anger and hostility towards the child abuser serves to protect your children, right? So certainly if you claim to love him and you claim to want the very best for him and, and you love God within him or you love the virtue of the soul within him or whatever, it's going to be more complicated and confusing and challenging to keep him away from your children, right? Because you have a positive emotion towards him, whereas if you just have a plain negative and hostile emotion towards him, it's going to be far easier to keep him away from your children because it's not complicated, it's not ambivalent. The the agape is not, not an emotion. Like so much, our emotions just they are what they are, and and it's really what we do with them that that's that's important. So, um, I I can, and when I say what's best for with for him in this case, what's best for him would be that he comes to repentance and comes to know Jesus. That's what's best for him. Um, you know, it's not. Uh, it's a very well defined thing that's best for him, um, and uh, and that justice is served. That he that he has to face the consequences of his actions because it's really bad for people to do horrible things and not face a consequence. But there's not an emotion attached to this one. That is just an I have decided. It it is a pure act of will. I am going. But you understand, to love is generally perceived to be an emotional experience, right? Yes. Oh, it definitely is. The that's feeling. why we have have to break it out. That's why you have to break out what the what the Bible's saying with that particular word because it's so foreign to how we think. Um, we all in with us, love is always attached to emotion, but with this word that's used over and over again, there is not an emotion attached to it. It is a decision. All right. It's how let me, it's how let me you pretend can... to be a preacher for a moment if you don't mind. Because I'll tell okay. you what I mean I appreciate this elucidation. It's very, very helpful to me and I think you've explained it very well. Thank you. But uh, let me tell you, I'm Heather, trying, what I think. Stephane, I really am. Okay. I'm sorry? I said I'm trying. Stephane, no, doing great. Really doing, doing, doing really well. And it's a challenging topic, and I, I appreciate the, the clarity you're bringing to it. So here's if, – if I were a preacher, and I don't know, do you want, like, reasonable Protestant preacher or fiery Baptist preacher? What's your particular Re preference? Reason I have a reasonable Protestant preacher. So yeah, reason okay, so I'll, I'll be yeah. my sonorous <laughs> self then. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. So no, this, is, this, like this is my belief about – love and and courage and i'm going to try and put it in the context of what we're talking about because i want to honor what you're bringing to the conversation which is great stuff okay so i would say this i would say heather if telling the truth is hard because people are hostile towards the truth if telling the truth is necessary to bring them to jesus if telling the truth is necessary to bring them to god if criticizing their wafered materialistic sinful satanist behavior is necessary to bring them to God. And if the reason why it's hard to tell the truth is not primarily because of the hostility of others, but of our own cowardice to speak the truth, right? The reason a bowling ball is hard to lift is not just because of the weight of the bowling ball, but because we haven't exercised and made our muscles strong. If we've exercised and made our muscles strong, then we can lift the bowling ball. If we are weak and have these spaghetti arms, then we can't lift the bowling ball. But that's not the fault of the bowling ball. That's the fault of our failure to train uh, and become stronger. 
So if virtue spreads through speaking the truth about Jesus, speaking the truth about God, and if the reason that you don't want to do it is because you're afraid, not because of the hostility, that's just the way to the bowling ball, but because you are afraid, then the primary virtue that you need is courage. You have the love, you have love of Jesus, you have love of God, you have love of your fellow man, to even have the idea to approach them with the good news, right? To have even the idea to approach people with uh, Jesus and salvation and heaven and God. So you already have the love. You have love of God, love of Jesus, love of the Holy Spirit. You have love of your fellow man. You have love of the truth. You have love of virtue. You have all of that. You're overflowing with it. But if you lack courage, your love will not manifest itself in a way that saves souls. Absolutely. So this is why I would say that courage is the highest virtue once you have love. Now, love is not a virtue if it only exists within your own heart and your own mind. It does not at all spread in the world. Because that's selfish. That's keeping your knowledge of salvation to yourself. It's like having a cure in a time of a disease and only keeping it for yourself. That is selfish. So in order to go forth in the world and bring people the good news of Jesus, you must first and foremost have courage. And that's why I would say that courage is important. Courage also is to love God despite sacrifices, to love Jesus despite discomfort, to love heaven despite the temptations of this world. All of that requires courage. And this does not mean love is unimportant, but it means that I would put courage first and foremost. And Heather, I would put this particularly for you. Particularly for you. Heather, would you say that women in general find it easier to love or easier to be courageous? Easier to love. Right. So for you, Heather, you focus on love being the highest virtue. Why? Because it's easier for you. Now, does God want it to be easy for you? Now, don't get me wrong. Men find it a lot easier to have courage sometimes than to love. And this is why there are these two virtues. For women, the focus should be on courage because love is what comes most easy. For men, the focus should be on love because courage is what comes most easy. But it is the hardest virtues. It is the most thorny climb that gets you to the highest place. So for you, to focus on love, which comes easier, is a way of bypassing or avoiding the great challenge which women have, which the world desperately needs, which is for women to have courage rather than love. May I interject something? No, that was the end, so... (laughs) Oh, oh. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) So, yes. Um... I, without the basis of love, I I wouldn't, and without the basis of my beliefs uh, and the belief that that love is the thing that, um, the way I view people, you know, through that lens, I I wouldn't necessarily have a reason to be courageous. I would, you know, if if I didn't care um, or if I didn't love them, why would I say anything to them? Why would I bother? Well, because if Christ had kept his knowledge of heaven and if Christ had kept his knowledge of God to himself. In other words, if he'd had love without courage, you would never have become a Christian. Oh, absolutely. And and I am not saying at all, at all, at all, um, that uh, that courage is not absolutely important. It is crucial. Um, I'm just saying that my starting point would be that the reason that I am being courageous and just um, 
just so you know, like this is this is terrifying for me. So I'm being really courageous good. right now. <laughs> good. I, I don't mean good that it's terrifying for you. I mean good that we're having the conversation. So yeah, yeah, no, I my uh, trust me. I've just ma- past- made about eight million atheist heads explode by having this conversation in the way that I'm doing it anyway. So we're we're both there in the same place. So go ahead. Thank you so much for letting me. But no, I, my my pastor says you got to step outside your comfort zone, and and I was thinking today that I'm like thirty thousand feet above my comfort zone, and I can see the neighborhood, but I don't know which one is, is my zone. You know, I'm, that's how far outside my comfort zone I am at the moment. So, um, so anyway, I, I think that, that the courage is, is a result of the, the love. So can I ask you a question? Please. It's uh, certainly only fair. Okay. Would you say that a person who, um, who straps on like an explosive vest and walks into a crowded um, building, believing, believing that he is doing uh, something for his God, um, knowing that he's going to press a button and fly into bits and be all over the room. Um, would you say that he was courageous when he was doing that, that that took courage to do? Philosophically speaking, no, not at all. No, okay. Quite, quite the opposite. That This is an act of, of cowardice and self-abandonment. That the only thing the only thing that you have to bring to human society as shrapnel is a confession of impotence in the realm of virtue and thought and philosophy. That that the best that you can do is turn yourself into an exploding bag of meat. So no, I do not believe that it is uh, courageous. Uh, the real courage is to stand for the truth against the mob. That is where virtue comes from. And the fundamental question that you and I are batting back and forth, Heather, is is virtue an experience internal, or it is, an, is it an action in the world? And this is the two differences, right? Because love is an experience within the soul, within the mind, within the body, right? Wherever we want to place that. So if the highest virtue is an experience, then sure, love. Because courage is action. Courage is not a passive state. And I'm not saying love is entirely a passive state, but you can experience the virtue of love without lifting a finger. But the question of courage has to do with action in the world. It's like weightlifting. If there's not resistance, you're not lifting anything. (laughs) You're not getting any stronger. Right. And so the question is, is, and and it's a big question that's more, more than just um, the, the, the sort of framework that we're talking about. Is virtue something that you experience or is virtue something that you do in the world? In, in other words, the traditional difference between wisdom and action is that wisdom is a state of mind and action is a state of body, state of being, a state of doing, really. Now, if the highest virtue has to manifest in the world, then it must be courage because courage is that which allows virtue to manifest in the world. If the highest virtue is love, then that's all you can and need to be good. And you can get the icing on the cake called courage and action. But uh, I think since religion, particularly Christianity, relied, only exists because of action, only exists because of the courage of Jesus, then I would say that um, since your only capacity to get into heaven is the result not of Jesus's internal state, but his external actions, right? His Sermon on the Mount, uh, his uh, whipping of the money changers, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his communication um, to, to all of the people around him about the arguments that he brought to bear on the planet, 
since the only reason that there is your capacity, the only reason or the only way you have capacity to enter heaven is the result of the courage of Jesus rather than the experience of Jesus, I would say that I would put it a little higher than love itself. Again, but courage uninformed by love uh, is often bravado or braggadocio uh, and often destructive. Well, um, one of the things about love, biblical love anyway, that's mentioned is that it is an action. If um, if you are not doing things that are loving, then you are not loving. You know, um, it says that uh, it's the passage in Matthew where um, where God is, Jesus has separated um, the nations of the the sheep with the nations of the goat, and and he asks them um, one question: What did you do when you saw my uh, the least of these? in need. Did you give them a cup of water? Did you give them your cloak? Did you put on, did you feed them? Did you take care of them? And, um, the, where, where, what side they're on and God's response to them matters about what they did. If you don't, um, act on your love, it's meaningless. You must show that through what you do. If I say I'm a Christian and I never, uh, help anybody and i never um i never uh actually you know give to somebody or i never volunteer my time or i never do anything then then my love is is just this silly little concept of you know in my head it's not a real thing it's not real uh, until you do it it says and uh, you know jesus on the cross it says you know that god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us like that is the demonstration of his love it's not an internal thing you must make it external or else it doesn't matter right and so since for me virtue is what you do and it's not yes. it's a subset of what you do obviously right you wipe your nose yeah. it's not necessarily virtuous and there are certainly right. <laughs> actions that you can take you know strangling a kitten or whatever that's not virtuous right. that's, that's bad. but yeah. virtue is a subset of action defined by wisdom and courage right wisdom plus courage together produces uh, actions which are virtuous now if and, and this goes this is you know just so everyone out there knows that what heather and i are talking about is is a fundamental question within christianity and has been from the very beginning right is it is it deeds or faith that gets you oh but james heaven? answers that james answers that um it's it's faith that gets you into heaven but but james says um you know, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your works. Um, it, you're not earning your way in there, but if you really believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you really have accepted him as Lord, it's going to show up in your life. You're going to, you're going to act on it. Show me your faith by your works. Do you and have maybe faith? we're talking about two sides of the same coin here, because I, I mean, for me to, to love truth, to love virtue, to love philosophy is what motivates me to act. It's what I use to you know, as as the bellows to to heat the fire of my courage to overcome the obstacles and the hostilities, the lies, the slanders, the accusations, the, all of the crap that goes on in the world when you uh, shoot a um, a giant flare of truth um, into a dark and stormy sky. So for you me, you are very courageous. It, it is. I'm sorry. I said you are very courageous. I'm well, impressed you. with your courage. Thank you. And and I think that so maybe it's a yin and a yin a yin. Sorry, I just got this correct the other day. Not yin, a yin and yang thing. In that the more we love virtue, the more we can manifest our commitment to virtue and courageous action in the world. And so maybe these are two sides of the same coin. And maybe you've just convinced me that not that courage is the highest virtue, but that it is the combination 
of uh, wisdom, or I, I would call it wisdom, you would call it love, uh, for the difference mm. between theology and philosophy. But right. um, yeah, I think I think you made an excellent case that um, well, thank you. one can be courageous without necessarily being uh, virtuous. And you can certainly, but can you be virtuous without being courageous? Well, certainly not if you define no, virtue as yeah. action, because right. virtue will always be opposed in a darkening world, in a, you know, you would call it satanic and I would call it an irrational world, anti-rational world. So, absolutely, well, so very, very good absolutely. set of points, and I, you've given me a lot to chew over, and I, I really appreciate you bringing this stuff up. Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate you talking to me about it. All right. Thanks, Heather. I, I will keep everyone posted about what I mull this over. I never want to say, ah, I got a lot to think about, and then, oh, look, something shiny. I'm going to have a power right. bar. <laughs> right. I promise you, I'm going to keep <laughs> on this in my head, and uh, I will um, either we'll be back or I'll, I'll talk about what I've uh, thought about uh, over the next couple of days. So I really appreciate you bringing this up. It's a very, very good, uh, good set of arguments. Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Heather. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, up next we have V. V wrote in and said, Being black and conservative has been a lonely life in my experience. I am 38 now and married but without children of my own. I was brought up in a two-parent household with a strong father, God rest his soul, and was raised not to have children out of wedlock and not to get involved with any man that had children. I have had many relationships and the only time I had a child... I lost him in March of 2015 at 21 weeks, and I was married at the time. I still want children, and I would like to discuss the underlying issues I've had as a black conservative on why I'm having children so late. I feel that my conservatism has had a big role in why I have not had a husband nor any children until late in life, and would love to expound upon it, for it is something that is rarely discussed. Am I doing a disservice now if I want to have children by the time I am 40? That is from V. Oh, hey, V. How are you doing tonight? Hey, how are you? Very well. Thank you very well. I am, first of all, sorry, sorry, sorry to hear about the child that you lost uh, in 2015 at uh, 21 thank weeks. You. I am, that, that's so hard, so hard. And I, I really, really want to extend my sympathies for that. That's a very, very difficult situation. What, was it a miscarriage? Is that what happened? Yeah, well, actually, it was a premature birth. What happened was, is that uh, my blood was too thick. So thank God we found out what the issue is. So when I want to get pregnant next time, I will have to take blood thinners. Mm. We just didn't know. Right. And I was passing big clots, and I did not understand. And then I felt the contractions. So what they were trying to do is stop the contractions so I can wait another three weeks and have a viable uh birth at 24 weeks and then we would continue from there but the my body just didn't it just couldn't do it so i had to give birth uh, um so sorry i mean very, and it's it's a brutal thing to experience because it is the greatest joy that turns into the greatest disappointment i'm so sorry yes well thank you and but it what weathered the storm of course is my faith in the lord and knowing what is going on, because 60% don't know why it happened. I at least have an answer. So now we have a solution to what happened and how to remedy that situation the next time. Right. It is funny, eh? Like you spend half your life trying not to get pregnant and then half your life trying to get pregnant. And uh, it's mm -hmm. stressful either way sometimes, right? Absolutely. Um, and like I said in my question... Um, and we've talked about this, like, cause I talked to you 
on my birthday, September 9th. I remember. About, I remember. Yeah, and, you know, and uh, you know, I had my stepdaughter. Well, she moved back with her grandma. She didn't want to be in Arizona anymore. <laughs> she missed home, and I'm not going to make her homesick, so she moved back with, with grandma. But, um, you know, we still – she, you know, and she um, – she was around when we suffered that loss. So, you know, we were all experiencing that, but I do believe that I made a conscious decision a long time ago that I was not going to procreate with someone that did not understand nor respect my values and did not have values that would better society. I was, you know, I, I said before in our last conversation that, you know, when my father, you know, taught me, he's like, don't let any man control you. As time went on and I started meditating on this, it's like, wait a minute. He's not just talking about, oh, man, control me and tell me what to do. No, he was also meaning don't let the government control you, but don't let men who who see the government as a savior to control you either. Yeah, don't let a man or the man control you, right? Right. 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 And so when I look back on it, a lot of the men that I had had relationships with, the biggest stark difference was my political views. I am not a person that believes in black struggle. I am not the person that believes that the white man kept us down and they're still keeping us down. And the very ones that did keep us down are the very damn party that they still voted for. Why would I want to marry a man that's in mental slavery? Why would I want to have children with someone like that? Right. I mean, of course, because, you know, if, if, um, if black men, if, if there's a black man out there who just, you know, hates white people, hates white culture, hates white countries, and is living in one, his odds of success got to think going to go down just a smidge. And that's going right. to be a tough person to be dependent on if you want to stay home and raise kids, right? Right. And, 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 and so I, you know, and I was brought up, you know, yes, you know, get your career and things like that. But the career that I want to do and now I'm going to school for audio engineering, it is kind of, it. it's hard and it's easy to have a family with that. Uh, especially I want to do broadcast and audio books. I kind of want to do what you do. You know, it's nothing now to set up your own studio in your house and actually start a show and things of that nature. And No, it's commentary. massively expensive. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. No, okay. No, yeah. I, I, do, I do remember what a pleasing voice you have. So yeah, you should certainly take a swing at that if you want. <laughs> yeah. Yes, donate the stuff on show, seriously, especially with YouTube trying to make you, uh, what, family-friendly? What the hell is that? That's not family-friendly at all. I, I am good um, family-friendly. Always have been. Bad families, Yeah, not, not so according to Not so much to corporate because you tell the truth and stuff. They don't like that. <laughs> and I think that's had a huge impact on my relationships because, quite frankly – I am going to tell you how it is. I will debate you and I will win because you're wrong. Here's some data. Here's some empirical evidence and bring, you can't cut me with ad hominems and anecdotes. It either the data's there or it's not. 
The right. word bed wench is not an argument. No. I remember that from last time. Negro bed wench. <laughs> I remember that. Burned in my brain in ways in place ways and places I can scarce describe. Oh my god. So t- tell me a little bit about because you, you you know I pay attention to whatever everything that people write, but when you say being black and conservative has been a lonely life in my experience, right? And your husband's white and, and your daughter is white and hopefully your children to be uh, will be a, a good blend. But um, what is the loneliness? You know, anybody who, who's not a cliche, anybody who's original, right? Vanity, uh-huh. you know, who's not vain. Vanity is just the fear of appearing original, as Nietzsche says. So anyone who thinks for themselves, there is a loneliness involved in it. And um, what what has that been like for you, and, and how has it shown up in your life? Oh, the typical stuff that we talked about before. I'm not black enough. Uh, you know, if you notice, because we talk about, you know, you talk about multicultural uh, multiculturalism, and I can tell you that multiculturalism does not work because if you are not part of the culture that you are born in. You're not going to have that culture at all. Mm. Muslims stick together. Hispanics stick together. Jehovah's Witnesses stick together. The Jews stick together. The Italians stick together. Okay? So when you have this, the community has this meaning of what it means to be Italian, what it means to be Jewish. But if you don't, I think the Italian thing is a deep appreciation of brickwork. That's the... Right. Only thing that I can really, really describe and hairy <laughs> fingers. But anyway, um, and, and yeah, sorry to interrupt, I, but this is the funny thing, of course, because, you know, if, if you're black and you're conservative, somehow you're not black enough because to be black means to be a Democrat, right? But then when people say, right. make any collective judgments about blacks, it's like, well, no, no, you, you got to treat us in, as individuals. It's like, well, why don't you all treat each other as individuals that you can be all over the political spectrum and still be fully black? Why does black have to be a political identity? And then the moment anyone says anything about black political identity, well, that's just racism. It's like, I can't win in this game. You know what kills me? And I just had this conversation with one of my fellow students at school, like how uh, he he was sitting there and he was talking about uh, these Hispanic cops who were friends of his. And they were talking about how they agreed with Trump. And, you know, he said, I had to bite my tongue because, you know, Trump is racist. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, so you found it confusing that Mexicans thought that Trump was doing the right thing dealing with immigration. Let, Let me ask you something. I said, so you got a problem with Trump being racist, quote unquote. But uh, do you do they have Black History Month in Mexico? <laughs> right. Do they have do they have uh, black memorials to the black slaves that they brought over to pick their sugar cane in Cuba, Dominican Republic, Brazil, Saudi Arabia? How many, how many black people are in high political power in South America? Don't worry, I'll wait. If I'm wrong, y'all can write in the comments. But um, is there? Can, can I don't know a Mexican black a black Mexican mayor. Do you? I uh, can't, can't say that I do. Okay, so why are you going to come over to my fucking country and talk about how racist Trump is when y'all ain't done not even an eighth of what American people have done for black people? 
Well, the other thing too that that sort of that struck me about this sort of the Hispanic or mestizo uh, immigration into America, and this is true for all all of the people who come from different ethnicities who come to America, is that keeping America the way it is is respecting their choice, right? I mean, people come from Mexico to America mm-hmm. because they don't want to be in Mexico, and so if you turn America into Mexico. You've just shafted their entire sacrifice. You have just completely skewered everything that they fought to escape from. And you've returned them back to a kind of prison that they've really spent, you know, teeth and fingernails clawing their way out of, particularly if they've come across illegally, which, again, I don't agree with and all that. But it is respecting the preferences and choices and sacrifice of immigrants to retain the culture that they sacrificed so hard to get to, you know, if your if your dinghy is drowning and you fight your way across shark infested waters to get to a boat, you don't want them to drill a giant hole in the bottom of that boat and sink it too, because you kind of got there because it wasn't in the water anyway. So I just wanted to sort of mention that. But go ahead. Well, what blows my mind too is when they're like, "We are a nation of immigrants." My ancestors weren't. We were brought over here not by our choice. We're not immigrants. We were slaves. Immigration denotes choice. So for you to come and ride our coattails about the black struggle, which is another thing the Democrat Party always does. You know, everybody always wants to ride on our struggle all the time, whether it's gay rights or immigration. They always use us as the post. Right. But they don't do a damn thing for us. And this type of opinion has cost me a lot of dick. Okay, and I don't. <laughs> well, this it. is what Ann Coulter says, right? When when the Mexicans start complaining about racism and and white privilege, and she says, "Sorry, you're not black. We don't owe you that." Right. But you have no problem riding on my boat, though. <laughs> right. And then turn around, and it blew my mind when that Muslim mayor decided to call moderate Muslims or Muslims who don't want you know, radical Islam to take over the world, Uncle Tom. I'm like, what the fuck? What? What? Like, oh, here we go. There they go, using our stuff again. Now, now that's what I call cultural oh. appropriation. And you don't yeah. hear that getting called. It's a bit more important than who's got dreads on today. Anyway. I'm saying, like, no, that's cultural appropriation. How are you going to use Uncle Tom? And first of all, uh, Uncle Tom was a good person. He wasn't a sellout, but, you know, people don't read. Um, <laughs> but it's these strong opinions that I have that I think subconsciously has made me wait until the right person came along to procreate with. Right. Now I know, I know, we're supposed to have children at a younger age, but at the same time, I would rather risk having a child at an older age with the right person than to procreate just because my biological clock is ticking to make up for the falling birth rate that we have in the United States. Yeah, I was 42. I'd rather produce a good one. I was uh, I was 42. And um, huh? n- not not by choice, you know, this is just the way things worked out. But um right. yeah, it's 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 way better. Way better having a child later on, assuming, you know, healthy and all that, but it's way better right. having a child later on with the right person. It's, you know, the, yeah. the best is, you know, child when you're young with the right person. Next best is child when you're young, or when you're older with the right person, and then um, no children at all, and then children with the really wrong person is the most disastrous situation at all right. from what I've seen. And it's disastrous for society because yeah. when you – Because when you're married, you know, 
you're going to either take on your spouse's ideals or they're going to take on yours. And usually I find that the worst ideals are more influential than the best ones. And I just don't feel like sitting there living with someone who can't see that that can't be red pilled. I, I can't do it. I, I I just I can't. Oh, I I couldn't spend the rest of my life biting my tongue, like and and chewing on my lip. No and, way. Blah, no. You know, being afraid to watch the news or watch any TV or get any information coming into the household because you're going to end up on opposite ends of the political spectrum. In other words, the sane and the insane end of the political spectrum. And for more on this, you know, just so we can skip past this part, people could just check out the recent video. Help! I'm dating a social justice warrior. Which uh, oh god, this guy. I saw that video too. Listen to the guys who know. Philippine women, Philippine women. Anyway, so, oh, so um, as far as um, if, if you want to have kids by the time you're 40, you know the risks. I don't have to tell you. There are some elevated risks. Um, I don't know if they're Absolutely. different for blacks than for whites. So obviously, I was uh, entirely racist and only looked up whites when I was sort of uh, working on this kind of stuff. So, you know, obviously talk about that with your doctor and, and check it out. But um, I have genetics on my side with that because a lot of my family on both sides of you know my father and my mother's side the average age of people having children is 40 anyway really maybe yeah, the conservatism really. in your family just comes from a late bake scenario you know yeah, <laughs> like you, yeah. The, the later you start the bread the more it comes out um with a right. Reagan hairdo anyway so know that it's fine i mean if you, you have a more of an extra responsibility as you know to sort of stay healthy stay fit i remember hearing about this from you in the past i don't think that's going to be a big issue you know but you know my daughter's like hey dad let's go rock climbing today and i'm like sure okay let's strap in and, and go rock climbing and this is why my hands have become praying mantis claws yeah. <laughs> uh, but so yeah just just stay healthy eat well keep your weight down uh, stay limber i stretch every day and you just have to right. you know and i do have to get I do have to get better in and get back into exercising mode because I have gained weight. I haven't lost it because, you know, uh, yeah, postpartum depression is a real thing. And a lot of it is the baby weight. And when you when you lose a child like that, it does take a lot out of you. It does. It does. It really does. So, yeah, you can you can get back. uh, You can get back that. But and again, just that's you'll have that out of love for your child. You just you want to stay fit. You want to. You want to stay healthy. Like, um, <laughs> I mean, and, you, you know, one thing that I would, didn't really expect so much, V, is that I, I really want to show off for my daughter. I mean, how sad is that? I'm supposed to be the authoritative figure. It's like, oh, daddy's being cool. But, like, there was this um, a rope ladder that she's like, dad, climb the rope ladder. I'm like, oh, do I have to? <laughs> and I don't want to do I don't want to be a pirate. But um, so, and and, of course, you know, there's this, hot young thing holding the bottom of the rope ladder so that it doesn't swing too much. There's my daughter saying, go, dad, go. And, you know, I basically half severed my arms with the rope burns just trying to get up this thing because it's like, oh, there's no God. way I'm going to fail at this with my daughter <laughs> watching. You know, like, so you kind of got to prepare yourself for these Olympics of vanity. And and I just, I don't want to be the, uh, well, my dad can't do that because he's a half a century old. <laughs> I don't want to do that, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to be like uh, Emmanuel Macron's wife, you know. Uh, Whatever she does, whatever babies she slathers the blood out of in order to keep that ridiculous Barbie hairdo going. I don't know what's going on with that, but I just I can't be that dad, you know. It's like what's that? Is it a? Is an Eddie Murphy bit about the the guy? You don't want to be that guy in the club. You know, the guy in the club who's just getting a bit long in the tooth, a bit too Danny Glover uh, in the club. Um, And it's the same thing with parenting. So if you stay fit, I think it's fine. Yeah. And I just, but it was just interesting to think about it. It's like, I was, I reflecting, I was reflecting back 
And I was looking at it and it was like, oh my God, I haven't really had a relationship with someone that really understood or accepted where I'm coming from. Like, like for instance, I know we talk about IQ. I know that there are outliers in every race and I was always made fun of for being the smart one. And everybody knew that I was the smart one, teachers, everybody, you know, and it wasn't something that I showed off or anything of that nature. And I'm very well read. And, you know, well, I get backlash for even being succinct in expressing my opinions. Like right now is, you know, while listening to your other callers, I was actually arguing about, you know, the scientific method and somebody made the statement saying that there, we didn't have the scientific method a thousand years ago. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? If we're talking Western scientific method, you're right. But there was always people who analyzed and uh, checked data and tested for empirical evidence of many things. And, you know, I had this person, I guess he was, from what I saw, he was black in his, um, in his, uh, photo in the comment section. And it was like, you're on that white man bullshit. I'm like, what the, what? We're having a conversation about the scientific method. How is it that I am on some quote unquote, what science is white now? Hello? Yeah, no. I mean, the only thing that's white about science is the fact that there's suntan lotion. That's, Uh, that's all I can give you. That was wrong, Stefan. (laughs) Was it so wrong? (laughs) Was it so wrong? Trust me, I'm Irish, man. We we can't venture out of a cave without like SPF 9000. It's just the way it is. But I've never really had these like these kinds. Of, I, I, I love to debate. I love discourse. I love research. I'll sit there. I want to like have a big ass suitcase of facts for anything that I want to talk about. Well, actually, it says this and you can go over here and find it here. I'll even give you the website, the source and all. I source everything that I talk about. So, but when I have that experience with my own people, who, you know, most of the times it's like they call me bougie or I'm being white or you're Miss Know-It-All or you're this and you're that. And it's like, okay, well, why would I want to procreate with people who think that I am less than because I don't identify with the stereotype in which you contradictorily um uh, protest against but yet want to uphold at the same time well it, it's i mean it's it's heartbreaking right it's like well v you have reason and evidence and good arguments and you're thinking clearly and critically that's acting white it's like this is not exactly breaking a lot of stereotypes guys can we not have this as a standard this which is a right, terrible exactly. thing to do exactly or or they're like you're not down with the black struggle i don't want to struggle <laughs> Why would I want to do that? I want a badge of honor for struggling. I went to the Marines, dude. I struggled enough and for my country. I'm good. I don't need to be like, well, now I got to fight for our struggle that we put ourselves in. 
the last 50 years. But yeah, I, I don't I'm, remember any fundamental law that was passed that demanded that the black community have a 73% out of wedlock birth rate. Um, yeah, that's shit. I don't remember the white man putting a gun to your head to let Jaquan knock you up. Just saying. <laughs> Listen, V, I, yeah. I appreciate the call. I got to move on to other callers. But um, uh, in my in my view, I mean, what am I going to say? I'm a 42-year-old first-time father. So, yeah, go go for it. You know, go for it like now. Because, um, you know, time's ticking away. But, uh, well, yeah, I, if I, you can, uh, get, get, get into it, get busy, get get uh, birthing, because uh, it's fantastic, and you're certainly not too old. Thank you. I feel better now. Yay! Excellent. Well, thanks, V. I hope to talk again. Let us know how it goes, and uh, we're going to move on to the next caller. All right, my dear. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right, up next we have Arthur. Arthur wrote in and said, Stefan, many callers often talk about teaching philosophy to children. I understand that this is possible and desirable, and I can imagine that a 12-year-old, for instance, can really benefit from more or less formal education in logic. With my own children being aged 3 and 5 currently, I want to ask Stefan about when and how, ideally, an education in philosophy should begin and proceed. That's from Arthur. Well, hey, how you doing, man? Uh, not bad. Thanks, Steve. Excellent, excellent. Um, how are things going with your kids and language skills and sort of thinking as it is so far? Well, they're developing really well. Um, my son, five-year-old son is really intelligent, starting to learn to read. Um, they have great language skills, uh, and they really bounce off each other. And his younger sister, age three, is really trying to do everything that her brother can. So she's quite competitive. And, um, you know, they've they've been able to ask questions about the world since they were two years old. And, um, yeah, so there's no problems along those lines, for which I'm very thankful. Good. And um, as far as philosophy goes, I mean, I can ask questions or I can sort of give you my brain dump, whichever you prefer. Yeah, ask me some questions. Okay, and um, how uh, have you been sort of managing what they learn and and how they learn so far? Well, um, I try to spend quite a bit of time with them, and um, I try where I can to explain what we're doing and why. Um, Not always successful in that, and I'd like to do more of that. Um, And, you know, I try not to expose them to TV shows that have the wrong message, that type of thing. Um, they both attended Play Centre, which is, um, because we're in New Zealand, it's a bit dif- different from what I gather um, Play Centre in Canada is like um, from comments that you've made in past shows. Um, but that's kind of a parent-led education. Um, then they're also attending kindergarten, and now my son is at a state school, Um which, you know, probably not as bad as in some other countries, but um, still makes me worry a little bit. So, um, yeah, and, and trying to talk to them about, um, you know, why we do the things we do in our family and trying to give them some sort of sense of, um, you know, making decisions in accordance with your beliefs. And what is the state school like? Um, well, um, 
It's a highly multicultural school, um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, having listened to your show, I don't see that necessarily as a, um, a virtue um, in itself. But it's actually, we had a choice of two schools, and um, one of them is run by this sort of very um, formidable, intimidating woman. Um, they have nothing to do with the kindergarten where my kids went right next door. They don't seem to be very interested in getting people to come to their school. I mean, you know, the bums on seats will be supplied by, um, you know, state zoning laws and that sort of thing. So wh why do they need to bother to reach out? Um, and this other primary school, um, there are a lot of immigrants um, and there are a lot of people there. Um, you know, in fact, it's quite a challenge for me um, going along. And there, there are there's this kind of sea of hijabs at times. Um, so, you know, you could argue that it's not even that multicultural, um, but it kind of reflects the suburb where we live. And the principal of the school is very um, sort of engaged in making sure that, um, you know, the kids learn what they're supposed to learn, that they do sports at lunchtime and that, um, you know, as far as, as far as possible, people get along. So it seems to be um, of its type, it seems to be a very good school. And um, the is it the sorry to to if you can just remind me the uh, is it the boy who's five or the girl who's five? The boy is five. The boy is five. All right. And does he like it? Yeah, uh, he does. I actually um, I spoke to him about um, you know would you like to change schools? Just um, testing things out, and he said. Um, but what about my friends? And, you know, that's um, that's a big consideration for, for kids um, is being around their friends. And Is your wife so, – yeah, um, I mean, sorry to interrupt. Is your wife uh, at home? Does she work? Yeah, she's at home, thank God. So why are your kids in school if your wife is at home? Well, we don't really have – I mean, we've got another baby on the way, so um, – and I work – outside of the home quite a lot. So uh, homeschooling would be really difficult. Um, sorry, why, why would homeschool, it, well, sorry, why would homeschooling be really difficult? Well, um, we just, we're just not really set up for it. Um, we don't know that much about it. It's not um, something that outside of a, a small sort of Christian community that many people in New Zealand do. So, Wait, you're, I mean, you're calling into growing. this show – claiming that conformity to general standards is is the excuse? No, no, not not at all. It's just that, um, you know, at this stage, um, my son's education would take a bit of a dip um, in terms of quality if he, you know, at least initially, if we were to do homeschooling. So How do you know? I know that, well... I'm just, yeah. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to corner you. I'm just, you, you say this... Very certainty. Have you have you sat in on your kids' uh, school? Have you figured out what's being taught? Have you figured out the manner in which being in which it's being taught? Have you figured out the values that are being instilled? How do you know what he's learning? Have you yeah. right gone through it all? I can see I can see his progress in reading and maths. That's been 
really good. I can see that at least. Um, I have been to um, the class during the day to pick him up, that sort of thing. No, no, no. I mean, um, sit in. You, you should be able to yeah, sit in no, on the I class if you want, right? Yeah, yeah. Or your True. wife could, right? Because you, you're handing your kid over to these people for what, six, seven hours a day? Yeah. Well, look, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm at, at the at this very moment with him attending school. You know, there don't appear to be big problems with that. But I'm just thinking. You know, his teacher's really nice. I've spoken to her. She, um, you know, I've seen she's got good sort of authority within the class and is really helpful. And I'm I'm really pleased with all of that. But I'm just thinking, well, you know, there's another few years to go of schooling, and it's not just all about, um, you know, well, he's happy there for the meantime. So, yeah. Listen, it's just something to think about, uh, and you really do need to know what's being taught to your son. Is there, you, you mean, you know how early these messages can get snuck in about, you know, girls are cool and boys are rough. And, uh, you know, there's no such thing as better or worse cultural values, everything's relative and so on, which is one of the great problems with multiculturalism is you just can't teach anyone any damn values, because whatever values you teach is going to offend some other group. So you've got to have this emptied out, hollow, semi nihilistic, pragmatic nonsense that's fostered in a, a mere inculcation of useless skills as a whole. And, uh, you know, you go to Catholic school, you get taught a lot about virtue and values and truth and honor and goodness and so on. Agree or disagree, at least there's some damn center gravity of, of, of virtue that the education orbits around. But when you get too many cross-cultures uh, in a particular educational environment, everything has to get stripped out. And, and usually all that's left is a vague hostility towards patriarchy and endless accusations of racism, right? Because that's the big problem with multicultural societies. Multicultural societies have huge problems in a status environment, no matter what. But one of the biggest problems is everyone says, let's have a multicultural society, which seems to involve calling white people racist all the time. And it's like, well, you, you can't have both. <laughs> you can't have a successful functioning multicultural society at the same time as you want to call people racist all the time. And of course, you know, we all know what racist means. Racist means racist. White people are racist. No one, nothing else, right? So... So I'm not saying that's happening necessarily when he's five. I'm not saying it's not because, you know, this is very much embedded. I, I don't know. You need to look also at what it's like in New Zealand for what kind of education are teachers getting? Are they getting all of this lefty indoctrination like they are in Canada and America and other places? Because if they are, then you're getting a, a socialist, a, a lefty, somebody who's into, you know, fantasies of, of patriarchy and, and white racism and all that. That's who's going to be instructing your son. And whether it's explicit or implicit, implicit in some ways is even worse, that may be part of what's going to be poured, in a sense, into your son's brain. And that is just something you need to be very aware of. Don't just sort of say, well, you know, the school seems fine, and, you know, toodles off he goes. Um, I think it's really important to figure out what's being taught, what are the values that are being taught, and um, what are the messages that are being uh, put across? Is he allowed to be proud of his culture? Is he allowed to be proud of his of his ethnicity? Is he allowed to be proud of being a boy? Um, I don't know, but the odds aren't particularly great that it will go that way. Yeah, I know what you're saying. And, you know, I've sort of thought, well, if it ever comes down to, um, 
you know, that he's told not to be proud of being a boy or being um, his, his ethnicity, then, um, you know, that will be, that, that'll be that. And then there'll be some changes made. And then I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned Catholic school. Unfortunately, um, the local Catholic school um, gives sort of an hour of homework per night to five-year-olds. So, um, you know, it, it feels as if we're sort of squeezed in between those things in a way that's, um, you know, one of them might be better than the other in one way, but certainly, you know, giving a lot of homework to kids um, of that age particularly I think is useless and potentially damaging. Oh, homework, so, is, a, homework is a massive scam. It, it does nothing whatsoever to improve skill sets among children. As far, and I've, it's been a while since I've looked into this, so maybe there's new stuff. But my last – it's not that long ago that I last looked into all of this. There's no correlation between the amount of homework given and the amount of uh, progress that children make in particular subjects, none whatsoever. Uh, homework is a way of blaming the children and blaming the parents for teachers sucking like a vacuum. You know, because they give impossible, hard to follow, ridiculous amounts of homework. And then when the kids fail to thrive and progress, they say, well, you know, it's because they're not doing their homework. It's just a big cover for, you know, crappy schools and crappy curriculum and bad teachers. Uh, and so, and, and it's another way that the government gets to interfere in your home life and in your family life. So uh, that, I think, is um, is pretty uh, pretty important. So just, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of homework. Uh, I, I think it's a ridiculous amount of intrusion. You know, when you become an adult, unless you're some jet-setting executive, you know, you 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 have your work. You you don't bring half the factory home with you to work at night. Uh, it, it is an intrusion into uh, home life. It causes a huge amount of conflict and anxiety for kids and parents. You know, have you done your homework? It's, you know, some long weekend, right? Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to get home and do my homework Thursday night. You know, same thing Monday night or yeah. Sunday night. Of everyone, oh, I'm going to do my homework. So uh, that is not... Uh, I'm. <laughs> Not a huge fan for all of that. Now, maybe uh, if they control for IQ, uh, we could find out more, a little bit more about uh, homework. But um, to me, it's like you have the kids for seven hours a day. You're paid ten to fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year per pupil. Maybe you could actually teach them while you have them, and not demand that they have to go home. Uh, and do stuff. Uh, or, you know, what What you should be as teachers is you should be really good enough as teachers that you shouldn't have to assign homework. The kids should be enthusiastic to, to do the work just because it's so exciting, just because it's so interesting, just because they're so curious and want to master it themselves. But um, forcing, forcing kids to do stuff is because they're not motivated and they're not motivated because the teachers are bad and they don't understand the purpose of why they're learning particular algebraic formulas or having to memorize. I can't remember when I was a kid, I had to draw the maps of all the feudal demands uh, in, in England. Why? <laughs> why? Why? Why am I doing this? It's ridiculous, right? So, yeah, don't, uh, don't just dump them in there and say, well, I'm going to wait and see if there's any damage being done. Be proactive and figure out what's going on uh, in the uh, classes. And yeah, you know, the question is not, do you want to transfer to another school, right? The, the question, Arthur, is, would you like to be home with mommy? Or would you rather be at school? That That's the real choice question. Because of course, you know, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I mean, if he's already got friends and a sense of social predictability and knows his teachers and knows what's expected of him, why on earth would he want to go to a new school? 
It doesn't make any like, So saying he's happy because you're giving him another state school or private school alternative is not the same as giving him a real choice. The real choice is, do you want to be at school or do you want to be at home? Being at home doesn't mean that your wife has to take on all the educational burdens. Of course not. She can get a tutor in for, you know, a short amount of time. Because when you think about it, and I'm sure you remember this from your own education, Arthur, but the amount of time you're actually learning stuff in the seven hours that you're in school, particularly when you're five, the amount of time that you're actually learning something of value and getting individual attention, you know, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that your kid with, you know, half an hour to 45 minutes a day of one-on-one tutoring time, which really isn't that expensive, is going to get as much, if not more, um, and in terms of advancing his skills as lazing about this place uh, for seven hours a day. Well, perhaps you're right. And perhaps before... Um, you know, confronting my wife with the idea of, hey, would you like to homeschool the kids, which sort of just sounds like um, a lot of work that she, uh, you know, doesn't know that much about. I'm I'm thinking, well, I need to go and scope out not only his school, but the local um, homeschooling networks to see what it's like and what is what would that actually mean as well because she you know, she knows how she are, knows i mean your kid's not you know 14 year old physics genius right i mean teaching kids the basics at that age is not that complicated yeah that's right um it it's not um you need some kind of guidance and curriculum of course and but you know the value of being able to go. Oh, look! It's the um, you know the let's tolerate LGBTQ people, but not tolerate um, straight people. Um, part of the curriculum. I think we'll just just gloss right over that. Um, that that's quite valuable from my point of view. Yes, very valuable. So as far as and I just wanted to point something out because I said is he allowed to be proud of his ethnicity? I don't mean that he should take pride simply for his ethnicity. It's just that if he's the only ethnicity that's not allowed to have pride, that's an implicit criticism. So yeah, we can strip all ethnicities of any capacity for pride in their own heritage, or we can allow everyone. But if it's the only kid singled out, that's unfair. That's sort of what I meant by that. But um, yeah, so as far as teaching philosophy goes, the first thing, of course, that the way you do it is the same way that you've taught them everything else, which is just consistently practicing it around them. I mean, I'm sure your kids are going through this phase where you have no idea where to get where they're getting all their words from, right? I mean, like, it's not like you've taught them every word. They just have a whole bunch of words that just seem to magically sprout in their brains from weird <laughs> dust particles full of syllables in the air. So the way that you teach philosophy to begin with is you teach sort of integrity and honesty and honor and dignity and all of that by modeling that behavior. You know, never ever make a promise to your children that you don't keep. I mean, barring ridiculous circumstances and so on. Just, you know, I've said this before, um, when my daughter was very young, I was going to go down to give a speech in New Hampshire. We stopped at a um, motel and, and she was dying to try the pool and we had to leave pretty early in the morning to make it for my speech. And I said, don't worry, I'll get up in the morning, and we'll go to the pool, I promise, blah, 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 right? She went to sleep in the morning. It's cold, it's raining, it's windy. And you know what we did? We got up and we went to the pool. Because, <laughs> you know, it's it's not something I really wanted to do at all. But it's better than the alternative, which is she doesn't know whether she can trust what I say. So just be that clear, be that consistent. And um, 
make sure that you keep your word in that way and, and, and tell them the truth. And if you're not going to tell them the truth, explicitly tell them you're not going to tell the truth. What does this mean? I'm not telling you right now. When you get older, right? What is, you know, what is this story about? Well, not appropriate, you know, figure it out when you get older. Uh, and that'll bother them, but at least you're honest about not telling them something in particular that, that you don't want to tell them at the time. And so yeah. having the, modeling that kind of consistent behavior, that kind of uh, moral and honorable and decent behavior, that is how you primarily are transferring philosophy to kids. And I also wanted to mention as well that the best way to teach your kids the value of debate is to give in to them when they out-argue you. So, so that way, debate has a purpose. There's no point teaching kids abstract stuff. What they want is for stuff they can use to get what they want in the here and now. And so when my daughter, as she did from a fairly early age, would catch me in a contradiction, would um, point out something that uh, I had said earlier, would, would win a debate with me, I folded. I folded like a cheap suit dropped from a hanger. <laughs> I mean, and I would give her what she wanted because she had out-argued me or she'd remembered something or she'd pointed out a contradiction or something like that. And that way, it was a value for her to listen to my every syllable, to watch my every mood, to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or when I would say something, this is the, the curse of these, these three unholy uh, words, right? So when I would say something that was not a particularly good reason as to why we couldn't do something, she'd just say, Dad, not an argument. And, you know, if I wasn't making an argument, I'd say, you know what, you're absolutely correct. Um, let, let, let me try that again and let, let's keep working at it until we figure out something that makes sense for both of us. So when you give kids, you know, if you want to teach them how to use, um, <laughs> I don't know, a robot arm, then hang candy at a medium height so they can use it to grab it. You know, if it's something material that they can use to help get what they want, then they will be very interested in learning it. So teach them the value of philosophy by modeling it and then by allowing them to use it at your expense to their advantage. And they will just naturally adopt that kind of stuff because... It works for them. It gives them a practical benefit in the here and now. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. It certainly does. And I think um, it dovetails quite nicely with um, a realization I had recently through doing the Jordan Peterson self-authoring um, program. Because I'm a, I'm a professional and, um, you know, I've, I've got a career and I've got a business in that profession and um, that's all going really well. And it was fascinating for me when I sat down to do the self-authoring and think about my ideal future and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it was all about my kids. And, you know, there was some stuff that I, I kind of do a lot of effort towards in my life that wasn't on my list of goals. And I thought, my goodness, I'm expending energy here. Um, maybe I need to be more focused on my kids. And then, of course, the self-authoring program says, what are you going to do about um, this goal that you have? And that was really interesting because I, I thought, well, I want to be the type of father where um, the kids want to respect me and want to hang out with me and want to, uh, you know, take on board my good qualities and ask me questions by being a nice guy to them, you know, kind of like what you've said about being in a, in a relationship. How do you make that work? Well, you, you do your best to be a good person. And I think that, um, you know, what, what you've been saying to me about modeling things um, is very good advice. And 
I recently did uh, a parenting course, and that was really great. And they said some stuff that really made me prick up my ears. They said, you know, what about family values? And we we eat fish, but we don't eat meat. And um, my kids never, I mean, they go to a buffet or something, they could eat meat. I'm not going to, um, it's, it's their choice. I don't police it. If some adult puts meat on their plate, I'll say, um, no, we, we don't eat that. But, you know, I, they could go and get sausages from the barbecue with their cousins if they wanted to. I'm not going to tell them off. Um, and yet that's a value that they've adopted for themselves. And I'm just thinking, you know, that's that's something that we're explicit about with them. Um, but it's really the implicit watching what their parents eat and, um, you know, occasionally talking about it. Um, and kids really do absorb parental values. And if if we think that they're going wrong in life, we need to look at ourselves first. Right. The other thing that's true as well is that rather than having your children ask you whether they can do something or whether they can have something, and then you saying yes or no, which is either either makes them passive or argumentative in a negative way. You know, if my daughter says, I want to do X or I want to have X, it's like, yeah, make the case. I'm, t- tell me why. Like, convince me, you know, <laughs> sell me on, on what it is that you want to do. And uh, that gives them the challenge uh, and the reward of making a good case. Now, again, at three, that's more tricky. But certainly at five, you can start to do that kind of stuff. So uh, I think that, uh, that that just give them whatever you can do to give their will and their language skills and their reasoning skills traction to the point where they can use it like caterpillar treads to get what they want, to get where they want to go. That is going to implicitly teach them the value of thinking critically, of assembling an argument, of bringing reason and evidence to to get what they want. And then they will immediately, you know, like if you want to change a light bulb, you need to get on a chair. So you get the chair and you don't have to be told that the chair is really valuable. You just use it to get what you want. And you want to make a philosophy, a a methodology they can use to get what they want uh, within reason, of course, or according to reason. And that, um, I think, uh, is the best way to do it. Yeah, I kind of had the sense that explaining to them that, you know, there was Aristotle and he lived thousands of years ago and he invented eudaimonism, which is, you know, acting in accordance with um, what you know to be excellent. Um, This doesn't seem like a great starting point for um, teaching kids about philosophy and that's not what I meant. So, yeah, what what you're suggesting suggesting about um, having some really long conversations and Instead of moving on from, you know, I want this to know um, and then moving on to the parent's agenda, just dwelling on um, on what the child wants and why they want it and how they're going to get it. Um, yeah, that, that seems like a great idea for me. It'll be a massive shifting of gears just because of my own personality and the way that I, I tend to do things. Um, and... You know, I'm I'm really willing to do it though because I see the benefit, and um, it's becoming more and more necessary. As my son, um, you know, they throw up new challenges every five minutes. We're about to have a third one, um, <laughs> so I've really started to think about being a parent and um, your idea of modelling um, things. Well, yeah, what am I modelling that I don't want to model? 
um, is a really good question too. So thank you very much for those suggestions and thank you for the suggestion about going into the school and seeing if I'm really okay with what's being taught. Um, you know, I do have to say that New Zealand is a place where I don't know anyone who demands to be called stupid pronouns. Um, I think most people who want to talk about race, um, you know, start from a point of view of it's important for everyone to be proud of who they are. Um, and, you know, but there's no guarantee that it's going to stay like that. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad that helps. Let us know how it goes and let's uh, move on to the next caller. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Jenna. Jenna wrote in and said, recently, I read an article by a feminist in which he states that women should not be permitted to raise their children full time because of, quote, equality, end quote. Since we already know that women overwhelmingly prefer to bring up their children as opposed to working outside the home, the argument seems to be that feminism is not about what women want. What possible value, then, does feminism hold for women if it sacrifices their real preferences for an ideological objective that makes most women miserable? Who benefits? If feminism is not about what women want, is it not utterly worthless, especially to women? That's from Jenna. Hey, Jenna, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. Do you want to expand on your thesis? Because, you know, once you uncork that genie in my brain, it's the kind of stuff to stuff it back in the bottle. <laughs> I I could fill in some background where, where I am right now, but... Sure. Um, okay, I study at a university in Western Canada, and I have recently come out, for lack of a better word, as anti-Marxist and anti-feminist. And uh, by that, I mean in my papers and um, during the lectures. Uh, I'm an English student at the moment. And recently, I wrote a piece of fiction for a class, which was flagrantly anti-feminist, um, <laughs> as well as anti-Islam and anti Marxist. And that led to some feedback from my prof, as you might expect, uh, which led to a meeting in her office, uh, wherein I was defending my point of view that contemporary feminism is a valueless movement that seeks to subjugate not only men, but women. And her point of view was that what I was describing was a very fringe movement. But I don't believe that. Well, well wait, wait. I'm her rebuttal to your arguments I've... was that what you're describing is a fringe movement? That's, that's not an argument. I mean, yeah, I can call anything a fringe movement if I want, right? Well, I mean, her, her point, I guess, was, you know, they're there. It, most people aren't like that. And that's really on the, you know, that kind of trash was, was being said in the 80s when I was in graduate school and this is nothing new and you know it's not going anywhere so again but no, I, I don't no arguments whatsoever no okay just 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 wanted to point that out for, for everyone but yeah i'm sure you no noticed it but go ahead well it's it's you know because people tend not to engage me with an argument um I'm ready to have one. I'm just, I'm raring to go. I'm, I'm waiting for your book to come out, the 
the art of the argument, you know, so that I can, and yeah, no one wants to, you know, really talk about it. So, well, this is why, you um, know, when you don't teach people how to think, they end up having to be conformist or blind rebels and they can't engage in arguments. And so they just have to pour themselves like liquid into any fashionable ideological container. I mean, this conformity is driven by a lack, the lack of individuation that results from people just not basically being able to think. So, yeah, ideologues uh, and, and uh, propagandists all love a society that doesn't teach kids how to think, uh, and it quickly hardens into this anti-argument stance uh, where people don't even know that they're not making an argument. And that's very a very strange world to be in when you do know what it is. Right. And especially since one of her remarks, my, it's a piece of fiction, but, you know, every every book is an argument. And one of her points about it was that it was uh, polemic. And I like, well, everything that we study at this institution is a, you know, polemic against uh, traditional values. So I mean, why can't I write a polemic? I don't know. I just, you know, I just tell you, Jenna, that when, when you said one of her remarks, I just thought it was R-E-M-A-R-X. <laughs> remarks, you know, like remarks again, <laughs> remarks, let's remarks this. Yeah, of course. I mean, yes. and polemic again, uh, calling something a polemic is not an argument. I'm sorry. I said I am marked for expulsion. <laughs> right, right. Oh, right. That was just a bad joke. I so yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, no, you. Okay. Yeah. So I looked up a little bit. Of, I couldn't find the argument that that um, women shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> I'm sorry, so women should not be allowed to stay home with their children because we're all about female choice. But, um, you know, 43% of women who are, like, well-educated and high achievers, 43% of them leave their jobs when they have kids. 43%. But apparently, the wage gap is a complete mystery. (laughs) I'm not working. I'm home taking care of my kids. So, as far as why women should not be permitted to raise their children full-time, well, There are career women who are not married. Maybe they don't want to get married. Maybe they don't want to have kids. And one of the reasons they want to drive women into the workforce is they cannot compete with men who have wives at home. Because men who have wives at home have women to to handle the finances, pay the bills, raise the kids. They have an equal partner in in running the household. Therefore, they're much more available for, for work and travel and all this kind of stuff. And especially if it's a single mom, a single mom can't possibly compete with a man who has a wife or a wife who has a husband if the husband's staying home and so on. So, of course, the women want, like feminists and, and other people, they want to drive women into the, into the workforce because it cripples the competition. I mean, it's just a resource-gathering stuff, right? The other thing, too, is that women, you know, as, as you yeah. point out, a housewife uh, is, has, has received so much negative stereotypes and denigrations throughout the last couple of decades. And now housewife means, you know, like... You know, a, a fat, slovenly woman with her hair in roll as a housecoat of indifferent cleanliness um, who's baking some Twinkies for the kids while talking on the phone and flicking her cigarette ash in her coffee cup, right? I mean, this is sort of the, the cliche. Somehow, somehow there are warts involved as well. <laughs> but the reality is that housewives are the happiest women on the planet in, in the West, um, almost without any close second. I mean, it's enormously fulfilling. It's enormously – and, you know – I'm a house husband in many ways, so I get it. I understand it's a pretty great 
pretty great life, especially after labor-saving devices came in. You know, this is the this is the crap of it. It really wasn't that much fun being a housewife when you had to take the clothes down to the river and beat them against the rock <laughs> to clean them. You know, that was really terrible, hard work. Like, a woman's work is never done, night and day, morning till dusk, especially when you had a lot of kids, right? Once you had fewer kids and labor-saving devices came in to the household, man, being a housewife, it's pretty sweet. It's a pretty, course, yeah. pretty good life. It's a pretty good Your kids well, are off in school all day. You can, you know, have some coffee, chat with your neighbors, have some tea cake, and have a book club. I mean, it's a pretty great life in a lot of ways. And it's just, you know, I don't know why all these women came along and said, wait a minute, we smell female happiness and contentment somewhere. Ooh, time to get in there and rile them up and make them unhappy with their happiness. And it's like, oh, man. Since the dawn of time, women have been having kids, dying in childbirth, and doing endless amounts of housework, morning, noon, and night, and cooking, and cleaning, and child raising, and so on. And then finally, for about 10 years, they had it pretty good at home. And then the feminists come along and say, oh, you're not really happy. You just think you're happy. You just think you're enjoying yourself. You just think these suburbs are good. You just think your husband loves you. You're really trapped and enslaved. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because when I go to an all-inclusive resort, which I haven't done for a while, when I go to an all-inclusive resort, I totally feel like a prisoner. So it is just, to me, pretty sad. But I understand that they don't want children being raised by their moms because then there are a lot of women out there who are happy, <laughs> right? Yeah, women, if women are unhappy, then they're more likely to seek political solutions. You know, you don't go to the emergency when you're full of the glow of health, you know, when you've got, I don't know, half a tennis racket sticking through your ass, then sure, you're off to the emergency. But in, in the same way that the priesthood had to make you unhappy and damn you in order to offer you salvation— what does feminism have to offer happy and contented and fulfilled women? Which is why feminism is like this Iago attempting to prick and deflate any apparitions of human happiness that appear in the female heart. They've got to go in there and say, oh, that's not real happiness. Oh, you're dependent on a man. Oh, that's not, you should be out there. You should exercise your mind. Why are you just, oh, you spend your whole life driving around kids and cooking like some slave. Why don't you get some nanny to do it? You're a tired, educated, intelligent woman. You've got to go out there, discontent, 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 discontent. And I, you know, maybe you can tell me why, but it seems to me that it, it's pretty easy to make women discontented. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, what was wrong with, you know, suburbs and a working uh, husband and, and enough kids uh, and to make you happy and enough money to, to be comfortable? And why are women so peculiarly upsettable when it comes to just people coming along and whispering in their ears like, you think you're happy, but you're really not. And they're like, wow, you know, maybe I'm not. Urgh. Does that make any sense? Like, it seems something quite common. Well, it, it does. And uh, a few things occur to me. And one of them is that, um, you know, you said that that these women are are convincing women that this is not what you want. But, I mean, according to this article written by, an, I don't know, I guess an Australian writer or journalist or something, um, it's, it's worse than that. They're telling them, don't care what you want. <laughs> you need to be represented in the workforce. Um, and it's not fair to women who can't afford to stay home with their kids and have to work. Those were sort of her points. Uh, these women hate women. Well, the question is why, 
why don't these women have a husband to take care of them? Why, why do they have to go to work? And, and I mean, this is the old question around what we really need is affordable and high-quality daycare. No. No. Oh. No, that's not, that's not what you need. That may be no. what you want, maybe what the feminists want. But uh, no, no. I mean, that's so insane. I mean, no, they've wiped out the ideal of family life, and then they they try to they they're looking in the wrong direction for for how to fix it, right? Right, right. It's like wiping out the the parking lot at the university where I attend to encourage people to seek out other methods of transportation rather than fixing the bus system so that someone will want to take it. It's ridiculous. Well, how about uh, having fewer students in the uh, university so they don't need these giant classrooms that are environmentally unfriendly as a whole? So that we... But no, it is, uh, it is, um, it's not about women's happiness. And that's not even complicated. And I, you know, I'm sure you know these statistics, uh, but um, this is, uh, as feminism has taken root, and it's not feminism, it's not, it's not, it's, Socialism. It's Marxism. That's all it is. It's okay. Just, it's Marxism in comfortable shoes. That that's all it is. Nothing to do with women, uh, and we know that because looking at and, and it always uh, was looking at the election in France. You have this woman, Marine Le Pen, who's supported by the majority of French women, and who could be the very first female head, female president in France. A break through the glass ceiling, a huge feminist triumph, and the feminists hate her. And they hate the French women who are voting for her. Why? Because she's not a Marxist. She's a socialist economically, but she's for closed borders uh, and uh, French sovereignty. And that goes against the international obsessions of uh, Marxism and, and leftism. So, no, they don't. I mean, uh, l- 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 go talk to a feminist, a feminist, like an, an, like a general academic feminist. Go talk to that feminist about Ayn Rand. Go talk to that feminist about Ann Coulter. Go talk to that feminist about Michelle Malkin. Go talk to that feminist about... Margaret Thatcher, go talk to that feminist about, and they'll hate those women. Sarah Palin, they'll hate those women. Why? Because they're not on the left. It's, it's got nothing to do with women and everything to do with programming okay, so women is- to, to be leftists, um, which is why you're okay. not getting an argument when you're not towing the literal party line, the, the, the party line. So, I mean, okay. we know this because as more and more of this toxic feminism has seeped into the mindset of men and women in the West, women have become progressively more and more unhappy. This is not me making stuff up. The, 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 the statistics, the data is very clear. Every single decade that feminism lasts, women get unhappier and unhappier and unhappier and unhappier. They don't give a rat's ass and a half about women, about female happiness. It's about using women as levers by which to undo the foundations of the Western civilization that protects women. It's about using women as egg-based bioweapons against the freedoms of the West. It is about using women, weaponizing women against men so that you destroy the relations between the genders, so that uh, white birth rates go down, so that men are terrified to get married. So, I mean, it's got nothing to do with what women want. Uh, women, in general in the West, don't say, for instance, really want to live under Sharia law. I think, I hope, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I think some men might be thinking about it these days. <laughs> but anyway, that's a topic for another time. But um, yeah, I mean, th- it's not about anything to do with female happiness or female empowerment or anything like that. It's always and forever just using susceptible women in order to 
buy a weapon, destroy the foundations of Western culture and Western civilization and, and the free market. That's all it's about. Okay, so Steph, has it always been? I mean, why do I care? Why do I care what it's been, what, what it was 100 years ago? Was there a time when um, the, the resources in society grew to the point where women could legitimately have political and, and economic equality to men? Sure. And, and there was, but that was happening anyway. <laughs> I mean, that was happening anyway. What, was it needed? Was it needed at one time? This is what I'm trying to figure out. Was a out. giant government program needed? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Well, equality oh. before the law? Sure. But equality before the law, like, so women, women had virtually no capacity to participate in the free market in any, you know, managerial role or anything like that. Why? Because all they did was have kids. Like, I'm sorry, that's just the way nature is. Nine months of pregnancy, breastfeeding, more pregnancy, no control over fertility, and religions that say have kids, no, no birth control, right? So women had nothing but babies. Now, upper-class women, different story and so on, but that was like one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of the population sometimes. So so what on earth was the point? I mean, I, I ask myself, what the hell is the point of educating all of these women when almost half of them just leave their jobs anyway. What's the point? I mean, if you, it's, it's because we have all of this fiat currency that we can allow women to LARP as men. It's ridiculous, right? Because if you only have, you can only have two hunters in the tribe that they have to go roaming across the landscape and they have to try and bring down woolly mammoths with willpower and toothpicks. You can only have two hunters in the tribe. Jenna, are you going to choose men or women in the past? Oh, I'm going to choose men. And if I'm ever in a burning building, I mean, I want whoever is rushing toward my third story window to have blood type testosterone. But I'm pragmatic. Right. And also, at a time where you actually had to swing a sword, you wanted men to be the fighters because most women could barely lift the damn sword. And, and couldn't yeah. march around in armor. Like now, it's joystick-based drone crap. Sure, you can have women in there, but that's not because of equality. It's just because physical strength and endurance is no longer essential or necessary for some aspects uh, of warfare. Great and technology. so it wasn't that there was this big giant oppression. It's like, sorry, women had to have babies and they had to breastfeed and, and they were debilitated from that and they were weakened by that and there was risk that they would die through through that process, you know, and, and that's tragic. Sure as hell isn't the fault of men. You can blame Mother Nature, but apparently she's a woman too and not much of a feminist, I might add. <laughs> so uh, it's, 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 it wasn't anything to do with oppression. So sure, when we get all of this, you know, the, the latex uh, condoms are invented in, in the 19th century, before that was like sheep's bladders or something like that, uh, and although in Afghanistan, often it seems to be goats, according to recent drone footage. But um, so when you women could get control over their fertility, when there were extra resources, when you didn't have to pump out five times the number of kids you wanted to survive because so many of them died in childbirth, when when you had some wealth, some medicine, some control over fertility, sure, great, that liberates women and men from this endless cycle of just having to get and have and bury kids. But it wasn't, you know, just that, that was happening in and of itself. You know, did it need to be pushed forward a little bit politically? Oh, sure, I've got no problem with that whatsoever. I mean, I don't care particularly. It was going to happen anyway. But How was it going to happen? How? How was what going to happen? How was it going to happen anyway? The equality under the law, women owning, having the right to own property and have a job or whatever. 
Well, because men defer to women. And if, 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 if women want it and it's possible, men will provide it. Okay. I mean, it, at least in the West, not, not, not so much other cultures, but, you know, <laughs> if it's possible, then men, Western men will generally try to provide it because it's a voluntary marrying scenario. And men want the highest quality women that they can get a hold of. And um, so, yeah. And, and of course, as health improved, then women tended to live longer than men, and therefore women would inherit a lot of property, right? So when women didn't outlive men because a lot of them would die in childbirth and so on, then it didn't make much sense to give women a whole bunch of property rights because they couldn't go out and sign a lot of contracts or own a lot of property because they were having kids and then dying. But when medicine improved, then women could live longer. And then generally, as you know, women outlive uh, men. Apparently, nagging is uh, the same as being a vampire. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But (laughs) so women uh, outlive men, and therefore women were accumulating a lot of of property. And therefore, of course, they needed equality under the law when it came to contracts and disposition of property and, and all that kind of stuff. It makes it makes sense. And that's how things go. And so it was going to happen anyway. It was already in the process of happening. I mean, I think it was Wyoming that first offered um, female suffrage because they wanted to, you know, it was a bit of a sausage fest out there and they wanted to attract more women. So it was happening anyway. You didn't need some big giant movement to uh, make it happen. And this is always the case with this kind of stuff. Like the environment was being cleaned up long before there was environmentalism. Um, Health and safety was being implemented in the free market long before there was OSHA and stuff like, I mean, they all just come along and and pretend that they're creating a wave that they're actually just riding. That's sort of inevitable. And if you look at the cost of it, let's say that without the feminist movement, it might've taken another decade or two for these equalities to be achieved. Okay, but at least you wouldn't have the giant crap show that's followed. You know, with, with massive family right. court interventions, with men fleeing marriage, men fleeing being parents, men going MGTOW, men freaking out about watching the smoking crater of their father's lives that occurred after their mothers called in the airstrike of state power on, you know, formerly somewhat robust testicular situations. So it is, um, you know, I, I'd rather, I'm a bit of a slow and steady guy, like I'd rather get it a little bit later and not have it turn to crap. Case selected. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that deferral of gratification thing. Although I will tell you, I was not born K-selected. <laughs> I was born in an entirely R-selected environment. No men around, butch women, um, promiscuity all over the place. So I was definitely R-programmed. It's just that philosophy can turn that around <laughs> if you let it. <laughs> okay. Oh, did I lose you? We were about to say something else. Hello? Did we lose him? Hello? All right. I think we're uh, done anyway if we want to move on to the next caller. From the form, I, I don't. I'm sorry, Jenna. <laughs> You're coming and going. Sorry, so Jenna. We're call, have call to... back in if there's something else you want to chat about. Really appreciate the conversation. A, a great pleasure. So thanks for the call. All right. Up next, we have Nick. Nick wrote in and said, I'm in a relationship with an incredible woman. She is beautiful, intelligent, virtuous, fun, and passionate. She embraces her femininity and respects my masculinity. She supports me in all my endeavors and relishes being a perfect homemaker. The only problem is that she wants to get married and have children. As soon as I realized that this desire wouldn't go away, I told her that she must proceed with our relationship 
knowing that those things will never happen. It was very hard for her to accept, but she stayed. The only thing she asked in return was that I keep an open mind. It's been about a year since that conversation, and my opinion regarding children hasn't changed, yet I feel her maternal instinct intensifying. It increasingly manifests itself in conversations and daily affairs, and sometimes I can't help but seriously consider letting her go. She's young, but nonetheless is still on the clock. I love her enough not to deprive her of what I can now see is her greatest value, which is being a mother one day. How can I clear my thinking so that I can make the right decision? That's from Nick. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Hey, Stefan, I'm good. How are you? Is she around? Uh, oh, uh, she is actually. <laughs> is she listening? She just got back. Uh, she just she just got back home from work. Uh, she's not listening right now, but I I told her that uh, it was possible that you'd probably want to join the conversation. Have yeah, her join I the want conversation. to talk to you a bit first. <clears throat> but if she's around yeah. uh, and if she'd be open to it, um, I'd love to chat with her as well. So let me. Yeah, she's a little nervous, but uh, she she'll come if ever she uh, if ever need be. Okay. Yeah. Um, why don't you want to have kids? Uh, why, why don't, well, the, there's a lot of reasons why I don't want to have kids. Uh, but, uh, the bulk of it pretty much comes down to short-term and long-term reasons. Uh, in the short term, I mean, I, I don't want to have children, but if I did want to have a child, uh, my girlfriend would definitely be staying at home to raise it. There's no way I'm, I'm, uh, putting the kids in daycare. And, uh, so therefore I'd be supporting two people plus myself. And I, I don't want to allocate any time and resources to a family when there's so many other things I want to accomplish. Like what? What do you want to uh, accomplish? Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors well, that are currently underway and that have been underway. Uh, there's a, so you'd rather have a money lot of, than children? Yes. Okay. Um, wh why does it have to be one or the other? Are you uh, saying that all wealthy like people, like no wealthy people have children? No, I'm saying that having kids right now would be capping my potential at the knees. Why? Like, uh, well, can you picture yourself having done your IPO while being a dad? I wasn't, uh, I mean, there were, there were fathers doing this stuff. I mean, do you think that um, I would be magically better if I didn't have children at the moment? Children can be a great motivator for these kinds of things as well. Children can help you push through some of that resistance because, mm. you know, certainly what I do now is very much informed by the fact that I'm a father and it gives me a commitment and a focus and a clarity and a passion and a courage that I wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Uh, I, I guess another major factor and another major contributing factor would be uh, whenever, whenever I do gigs, I, I am surrounded by a lot of dads and they just seem so burnt out and 50% of the time, uh, for the lack of a better word, unhappy. And I can't picture myself arriving home and having like the second shift start, you know, the, the routine, the, 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 the homework, the, 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 the bathing, the, this, the, that, and then having my own time at 11 PM and then passing out and starting uh, the whole thing all over again the next day. And but your wife I mean, would those... be uh, home, right? Does she want to stay home with the, with kids? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, so that would be mostly her job, and you'd get most of the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
it's 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 hard to explain. It's I really feel like having kids right now would be capping me, capping my potential at the knees. I mean, there's so much of uh, resource allocation that I want to do towards the, that I want to hand out towards other things. I mean, th- those are mostly the short term reasons, but the long term reasons. Um, once I've achieved financial independence, and I still don't know if I want kids, but I mean, once I've achieved that financial independence, uh, I've never known. I've never known what it's like to be completely financially free and knowing myself, I'll probably be driven to accomplish even more and I'll probably end up seeing the, the children as obstacles. And uh, that's that's not something I'd want to burden on anyone. Sort of that resentment. Was you know, your father an entrepreneur? Uh, at some point he was. And what happened? Uh, well, he, he was a national karate champion. He... He, uh, he Wait, represented no, no, Canada. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he represented Canada. No, 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 you're years. mistaken about that. Nick, you, you, he, can't, he can't possibly have been a national karate champion. Do you know why? Uh, no. <laughs> because he was a father. And therefore, all of his ambitions were capped off at the knees. So you must be completely mistaken. Maybe he faked it. Maybe it was an animatronic version of your father. Maybe it was a hologram. Or maybe all of the footage and the trophies were invented. But he can't possibly have been a national karate champion because he had kids and therefore he was crippled. Oh, he didn't have kids. Oh, he didn't have kids. So he achieved his goals. And how old was he when he became a father? He was 30. He was 30 when he became a father. I'm the oldest of four and he, he had me at 30. Okay. And then what happened to his life? Uh, he, he started his own dojo, uh, with my mom. They were both karate champions. And, uh, yeah, he, he grew his school. He he was pretty successful. No, he didn't. He can't possibly have done that for the aforementioned reasons, right? He had children. Therefore, he can't possibly have grown his own dojo being a successful entrepreneur. Well, the dojo was set up by then. Yeah, but he ran it, right? He grew it. Yes. Okay. So how could he possibly have done that if he had children? He found a way. Oh, isn't that interesting? He found a way. Yes. And your mother, did she stay home with you guys or did she work also with your father or both? Uh, Running a dojo uh, allowed him to alternate a lot. So if he would stay home and and play with us and do things with us sometimes, and then sometimes it was it was my mom. Right. Uh, most so, of the time, so mo- most of the time it was my dad. Mo- most of the time it was my dad because uh, the dojo allowed him a lot of flexibility, and my mom had some uh, some part time work elsewhere sometimes. So, so your parents didn't even have the luxury that you have, which is having a permanent full time stay at home mother and homemaker, right? They didn't. They didn't have well, because they, they they were both working, whereas your wife is going to stay home, right? Yes. So you're actually in a better position to grow a business than your parents were who grew a business. Are you a lot less competent than your parents? Is that the problem? Like even with the support of a wife at home, you can't make an entrepreneurial thing work very well. But your parents, both of them working, were able to do it with four children. Maybe they're just a lot more competent than you, in which case maybe you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Does that make sense? I I understand. I, I wouldn't say that. I just say I would just. I would rebut that by 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 saying that uh, 
I'm trying to get the most favorable math, if that makes sense, resource-wise, economic-wise. And the second kids come into the mix, then the math isn't as favorable. So if you were to talk to your parents and they were to say, well, our dojo business could be twice as big if our four children didn't exist, do you think that they would say, well, it would be way better to have a bigger dojo or more dojos in our franchise rather than having four human beings we love and who we are loved by? That it would be way better to have other people's kids be taught karate more than have our own kids. Do you think they would say that that's a good deal? It would probably have grown bigger without us. But then again, my mom insisted on having kids, so I don't know if, so it's, it's, it's impossible to tell. No, but do you, think, do you think they regret you existing because they could have had more dojos? Oh, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. So they prefer having children to having more material success, if that was the trade-off, right? That's Have you asked call, them? Man. A... Not, not in that sort of weighing one side or the other type of framing, no. Why not? Um, I mean, this is a pretty big and important question that you have, right? And well, if your the, parents the conversation are entrepreneurs who also the, had a happy and successful family, I assume that it's happy and successful. You speak very positively no, 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 of no. them. But if your parents were entrepreneurs who in their late 20s and early 30s had both a thriving business and a family when both of them were working, wouldn't they be the people to ask what the values no, but, were and, and what the decisions were and what they regret and what they're happy about and what they wish they'd done differently? I mean, you have entrepreneurs who are parents right there in the house they raised you and they're available a phone call away and you've never asked them about this i'm confused the family's broken up Steph. it's not doing well oh uh, when did my, that my, happen my, my my parents are divorced but i did have the conversation with my dad regarding kids and he pretty much told me he's like you know i, I asked him the question when i was 25 and he said um you know when i was your age i wasn't any i, I wasn't anywhere near thinking about having kids um He told me that around his late 20s, right before he turned 30, he sort of, his his, uh, perspective sort of shifted and he he felt like he wanted to leave something behind and pass things on. And that instinct that he described so vividly uh, never really swept over me. But we did have that conversation. So he's happy that he had children rather than more money. Yes. Okay. And how much... But I, um, but I feel like I'm different than him in that way. Well, but if you've already come to conclusions that you can't have an entrepreneurial life and children, then you have a false dichotomy going on, right? It's it, like Let me put it to you in terms that, that probably are more clear because this is kind of bound up in history for you. Mm-hmm. If you believed that you could only have great sex with a variety of partners, and if you believed that having the same partner meant your sex got boring and stale and repetitive and uninspiring and scarce, right, then you would have what's called a false dichotomy. If you want great sex, you can't settle down. If you settle down, you'll get bad sex infrequently, right? That's called a false dichotomy, and that's an impossible choice. So if, and, and so, but if you say, okay, well, I can have the best sex with someone I settle down with, then that removes that false dichotomy. So if you say, well, I can't be successful if I have a family, 
then you have to choose one or the other, then of course that's going to have an effect on how you feel and, and what's going to kind of wash over you, so to speak, right? No, well, I understand that it's doable. I don't reject the idea that it's doable. It's just I'm trying to put as I'm trying to boost my odds as much as I can. Well, and that's another false dichotomy, which is to say you're a better entrepreneur if you don't have children. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. I think that having children can really sharpen your skills as an entrepreneur, can make you more ambitious, can make you more driven. So I reject that dichotomy as well. But let me ask you this. And I appreciate, listen, I hope I'm not being a total jerk. I'm not trying to be at all, but I just I appreciate you you being this this clear about the conversation. And I hope that's... No, no, helps. Steph, so Steph you, uh, don't hold back. I'm, okay. I'm, uh, I, I want this and this has been looming in my head for a long time and it's it's this is good. How much, and you don't have to give me detailed figures, but how much are you making as an entrepreneur at the moment? Well, at the moment, uh, it's they're mostly uh, ventures that are in. I mean, I, I did. I'm I'm doing. No, I'm no, self-employed no, at the moment. No, no. <laughs> you're already fogging me, bro. How much are you pulling home at your age as an entrepreneur at the moment? Is it zero? Under, is it close to zero? To, what is it? Just under six figures. Okay, so you're making sort of eighty, ninety thousand yeah. a year as yeah. an entrepreneur at the moment. Uh, self-employed, yes, with other uh, other parallel projects going on. And how many hours um, a week are you working? Uh, anywhere between ten and sixteen. Oh, a, a week? Uh, well, ten and sixteen hours a day. So I guess with sometimes I take a day off. Um, over 100, I say I'm dedicating to all my my ventures. All right. So let's do some math. I'm going to give you 80K a year. Um, okay, hang on a sec. So let's just say you, you take some time off. So let's just say instead of 100, say 80, right? Okay. 80 hours a week times 52. So you're working uh, 4,100 hours a year, right? Okay. So you're making 19 bucks an hour. 19.50 an hour. Yes. So but like you I make said more some money of this, driving a truck. Some of the Yeah. So as far as being an entrepreneur goes, you're not doing very well. But a lot of that is learning. Dude, you're in your late 20s. And as an entrepreneur, you're making normalized 41,000 a year, I mean, with regular hours, right? Except you got crazy hours and you're making 19 bucks and change an hour. I, mm. I'm not criticizing. I'm just, this is the basic math, right? Right. So that's not very good. And I, I don't mean to be annoying, pull my experience, but, you know, by the time I was your age, I'd already started and grown a software company. So I'm comparing it to that. And the reason I'm saying all of this is not to try and make you feel bad or anything like that. But if you're looking at a big pot of gold, you know, well, if I just work for another couple of years, I could make $5 million or something like that, right? Well, then I'd be like, okay, well, I don't know. But if you, how long have you been doing this entrepreneurial stuff? Well, I co-founded a video production company three years ago, and uh, me and my partner had a falling out, so I ended up selling all my shares. And uh, at the moment, I'm No, when did you freelance. first start doing entrepreneur? Like, when was the last time that you had 
that your source of income was solely a regular old paycheck job? Uh, for three years ago, four years ago. Okay, so uh, you you didn't do entrepreneurial stuff before the age of twenty five, is that right? No. Okay. So four years into it, you're making nineteen bucks an hour. Yes. I don't know that it's kids that are holding you back. Four years into it, you should be making more than 19 bucks an hour, in my humble opinion. Fair you enough. can get out of high school. You can get out of high school and make 19 bucks an hour. You know that, right? Yes. So you got four years in. You're working crazy hours. You're hurting your health. It's got to have an effect on your relationship with your girlfriend, right? I mean, you're just not there a lot. I mean, you are there. You're freaking exhausted, right? So you're burning yourself out. You've got no relationship with your girlfriend. You, 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 don't, you don't want to have kids for 19 bucks an hour? And that's optimistic. That's assuming you're only doing 80 hours a week. If you're doing 100 hours a week, it's even worse. The, the income portion... Like the, 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 the income portion of what I'm doing right now is 40 hours a week. The side ventures are things that I'm like, I'm developing a board game. So that obviously doesn't pay that. And, you know, we're doing a lot of play tests and a lot of this, like it's, it's no, all development. That. But if you, if you're working hundred hours a week, you're making 15 bucks an hour. That's less than a waiter. No, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, you know, some of this stuff may pay off. I get that. But how long have you been working these crazy hours? Has it been since you're 25? Uh, 20, 27. Okay, so two or three years you've been working 80 to 100 hours a week to, to make yourself 15 to $19 an hour. You understand that's not good. I'm not, you know, criticizing. I'm. This is the basic math, right? I I understand. I just don't, don't get why uh, things that are in, you're taking into account things that are in development. Okay, when are these things going to pay off? Well, the what's board your games. what's your business plan? What's your marketing plan? What's your paperwork? I mean, if I were an investor and I were to ask you for all of these things, I mean, are you just white knuckling and grit teething your way through massive amounts of work and calling yourself an entrepreneur. I mean, when, when is this stuff going to pay off? When, what, what's the math? What's the ROI? What's, when is all of this stuff going to happen? And how, how are you going to know if it's working in the right direction or you were just doing a blinding amount of work and crossing your fingers? Well, I'm on the cusp of purchasing a rental property that's to get the passive income streams going and the board game is a creative venture it's a something something i'm working on with former colleagues there's a creative cinematic content that i'm starting to develop on youtube that revolve around uh, a lot of the topics covered on your show but you the, not answer my question how long have you been working on the board game 
uh, under just under a year. And when is it going to start generating income? It'll be released uh, this summer and uh, developing on how the Kickstarter campaign goes could be pretty quick. So what are your projected sales? What is your market research? What is the competition like? What is the market size like? I don't have any figures for you, Steph. But you've been working on it for a year, right? And I'm, I'm again, I'm not trying to be a jerk, right? I appreciate, just... I appreciate, I appreciate the questions. This is good grilling. Uh, it's, it's been only development. You've been doing all the fun stuff and none of the work. I mean, you've been doing a lot of work. Don't get me wrong here, right? But yeah. it's like, yeah, it's kind of cool to work on a board game, and we're gonna try and sell it. I mean, how how are you gonna sell it? Is it gonna go? I don't know about board games. I mean, is there a place? Like well, it's currently it's Kindle currently for books that a, you can sell board games. Well, it's currently entered in a in a contest, and we've made like uh, the we've gone past the first two sort of filtering stages, and then if we make it past past the next one, then that puts us into contact with publishers, and then from that point, uh, you know, they they could ask for ten thousand units, and then you know that's that's no, but they're not going to ask you for ten thousand units unless they see a business plan, unless they see the market share you expect to get and how you expect to get it and production costs and um, competition analysis and so on. Um, and ideally, they would really like to see experience in the field, right? I mean, is, is this a contest that goes on every year? Yes. And have you talked to people who won the contest in the past and found out how it went for them? Yes, we, we went to a convention and uh, got, got some good got some good tips from them from the ones that were successful. And they're making good money off it? Uh, half of them, half of them are. Uh, well, half of them, for half of them, it's given them a platform to develop more stuff and then then it starts becoming profitable because you're not going to make crazy bank on your first game. So you, it's a year and a half until you can even potentially sell it and then you have to find, I assume, six months to find out whether it's at all successful and then what do you work for an another year and a half before you can start to make some real money? So we're talking, what, three or four years before you start making some real money? With the board game, yeah. What do you think of that? I have the time and resources that allow no, me to... No, you don't have the time. Not if you're working 100 hours a week or 80 hours a week. You don't have the time. Because, I mean, doesn't your girlfriend want to see you? Oh, she sees me. When you're not working 100 hours a week? Yes. Yeah. When I when I'm not working, well, we just we we just took a trip to go. I went to go visit the in-laws for the first time. It was a good three weeks, and uh, I devoted all that time to her. I mean, I make up for it. Right. So you might be giving up being a father, having children keeping the love of your life, this woman who wants children, for a board game that might pay off potentially in three or four years. Does that seem like a good trade to you? Well, those real estate investments that I'm going to be making soon, I've saved up a lot of money. 
yeah, but real estate investments Perfect. aren't going to need quite as much time as a board game, right? Well, if I'm doing all this stuff myself, they will. <laughs> but if you're doing all the stuff yourself, then it's not very profitable. I mean, if, if you're out there unclogging toilets and changing light bulbs, then you're not making, that's not being a very good entrepreneur. Right? The whole point of, ha you, you said it's a passive income stream. A passive said, income stream means you don't have to go over there and do all the work. Well, it's not 100% passive, but I've spoken to a lot of people that own rental properties and they pretty much say, like, if you want to make, if, if the thing's going to be profitable, you can't be uh, calling contractors all the time. You got to learn the basic stuff and then call the con uh, contractors when it's needed. And then eventually you get a big enough, uh, you get enough units where you can hire a property manager, but obviously I can't start there. Well, I don't know much about <laughs> property management, but uh, I certainly know that when I um, lived in, I grew up in apartments uh, in in England and in Canada, and we sure as hell never called the owners, ever. It was always a superintendent. It was always somebody local. And And how long is it going to take for you to learn how to fix things and run things in a building, like the plumbing, the electrical, the whatever. I mean, that's, isn't that going to be a massive amount of work? Oh, yeah. But uh, I can shadow people that are doing it. And, you know, I'm driven and it's... it's. Wait, so people are already doing it. it, so you're paying them to do it? No, I mean, uh, owners that I know. Uh, people that own uh, either triplexes or four units or six units. Oh, so you're going to do unpaid work following them while they make money so that you can get a passive income stream by doing their work. Well, I, well, I got to learn it because, you know, it helps to negotiate with contractors when you can analyze the job that needs to be done. And uh, it's all, you know, th things that need to be taken into account if you're going to be getting into this kind of stuff. Well, no, I mean, alternatively, you could develop relationships with contractors that you trust, right? And that way you don't have to figure out everyone's job in order to feel secure that you're getting a decent deal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a constant balancing act. That's true. Is your father giving you advice on any of this entrepreneurial stuff? Uh, he's encouraging me. He's, he sees that I'm driven. He sees that I'm motivated. Uh, he, he gave us a really good work ethic growing up, so uh, he, he's proud. And he thinks that you're making sensible decisions with your time. Does he know that you're making between 15 and 19 bucks an hour after a couple of years in the game? Has he asked for I, I, business I really plans and sales projections bucks, and competitive I, analysis and all this kind of stuff? I fail to see how the 19 bucks an hour is fair. The, the, the revenue generating part of what I'm doing is 40 hours a week. The board game is to satisfy my, you know, my creative craving. I mean, I'm an artist. I work in the film industry. So that's like sort of a side project that, you know, it's a, it's a passion project. And the real estate stuff, I mean, it's I've crunched the numbers and it does make sense. But the 19 bucks an hour, I mean, it's, I'm making $42 an hour at, um, uh, at the gig, the creative gigs I'm doing at the moment. The rest of the rest of the, 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 you're making the 42 bucks an hour as a consultant or a contractor. Is that right? Or is yes. that as a, as a paid, like salaried employee contractor? 
okay, so you could be making the same, you could actually be making more than $80,000 a year just working 37 and a half hours a week doing the work that you're doing as a contractor, right? Yes. So being an entrepreneur is cutting your income in half. At the moment, yes. And it has been for the last couple of years. Well, this is something I've embarked on since I'm 27. I've made, I mean, I've made the decision to do this at 27. I, I pretty much uh, learned all the ins and outs of my industry, and I'm ready to use that as a stepping stone to move on to bigger and better things. So you say you want so to be an entrepreneur about, to make money, so but right I, now I'm being an entrepreneur... I mean, I'm sorry? I mean, the entrepreneurial stuff is things, the major, the most of the, the, the payoff of that is going to be in the years to come. I'm putting things in place right now. No, so I don't the, think the, you are. <laughs> I'm sorry to be annoying. I really, really don't think you are. This is my sort of, I've been an entrepreneur for, oh gosh, I guess a little over, a, I don't know, quarter of a century now. Yeah, almost a quarter of a century. So this is what I would say to you is um, let, let's go back in time to when you were 25, right? Now, what were yeah. you making hourly when you were 25? When I was 25, probably 30. Okay, okay. So let's, so, and now you're making 42, right? Yeah. So let's split the difference and just say 30, 36 bucks an hour, right? Why split the difference? Because we have to account for the fact that you were making 35 then and 42 now. So we can't say that you were making 42 the whole time, right? Sure, okay. Because we're trying to figure out how much money you could have saved if you were working as much as you are now, but making 37 bucks an hour, right? Well, when I co-founded the video production company, uh, I was making 120 an hour. But, but that business flamed out because of conflicts with the partner, right? Yes. So we'll talk but, about okay, we'll so, talk about the reliable income that you can sure. count on, right? Okay. Okay. So let's say that you decide to work again. We'll go back to sort of eighty hours, right? So eighty okay. hours a week on average, uh, eighty hours a week on average times fifty-two uh, weeks in a year, give us uh, four four thousand one hundred and sixty hours. Let's times that by thirty-seven hours. So you could have been making $154,000 a year over the past three years or so, on average, uh, rather than the 70, 60 to 70 to 80, right? So if we subtract, say, 70000 a year from that, then it has cost you uh, $84,000 to do this entrepreneurial stuff over the past couple of years. If we multiply that by three years you're out over a quarter million dollars by pursuing this entrepreneurial stuff rather than taking the same amount of time you've been pouring into the entrepreneurial stuff and working at your $37 on average um, an hour job, right? So it's cost you, given the work that you've done, it's cost you a quarter million dollars. But I wouldn't be growing my knowledge. Yeah, that doesn't put any food on the table. Growing knowledge in in how to build a board game that might pay off potentially in five years. <laughs> I mean, what would you do if you had a quarter million dollars now? That's more than it costs to raise an entire kid.
If you had a quarter million dollars now, you could buy a rental property or at least put a big down payment on it. You could uh, invest that money. You could uh, you could have bought Bitcoin three years ago, whatever, right? I mean, so if you had an extra quarter million dollars, and again, you know, this is all outside of taxes and all, but you're paying taxes either way, right? So so I, this yeah, is sort of my, my of question. <laughs> Your goal is to make money, but you left a quarter million dollars on the table. I took a risk. I did take a risk. And and that risk cost you a quarter million plus, right? Yes. So the problem is not whether you have kids or not. The problem is you're not making great decisions when it comes to being an entrepreneur, right? You started a business, it flamed out because of conflicts, and you don't seem to have much paperwork or analysis done for your board game, and I don't know what else. you got some YouTube channel you might start and so on. So you're going to start a YouTube channel when YouTube is pulling monetization from everyone who has even remotely controversial opinions. You spell kittens with three Ts, and suddenly that's like KKK and you demonetized, right? And so the YouTube imagine, channel thing, Imagine throwing kids into that five-year mix, though. No, no, you're not, you're not understanding what I'm saying. Okay. Oh, all right, let's go. Let's go forward in time. So let's say that you can make $45 an hour going forward, right? Your pay is going to increase over time, right? Yes. So 45, so let's say you're going back to 80 hours a week times 45 times 52. So we're talking close to $190,000 a year that you could make if you wanted to put the same amount of time into your hourly salary as you are into your entrepreneurial stuff, right? Let's multiply that by three years. So that's $561,000 that you're leaving on the table to some degree. I mean, it's not, you'll still be making some of that, right? Because right. you're working maybe a 40 hours a week or whatever, right? Yeah, we'll divide that by two. So $281,000 is what you are leaving on the table by pursuing this entrepreneurial stuff if it doesn't pay off versus just working an hourly rate, right? Right. I mean, Paul Joseph Watson has 900,000 subscribers, which it took him many, many years to build up. And he's making... $26 a day, $23 a day, $30 a day. I don't think YouTube is kind of the money-making machine that a lot of people think that it is. There were obviously ways to make money in the past, but if you're going to do anything based on what I do, then you're not likely to be monetized. So it's going to be brutal for you that way. I, th I think, so if, if I, I, think, you know, if I, I, think you... I allowed myself to do those creative ventures because of the time factor. I've, you know, if if I'm, if I'm being honest, I've allowed myself to take on those creative ventures because, you know, they satisfy the artist in me and the real estate stuff and the uh, the stream of income that I'm, that I'm actually creating. That's like the uh, money maker cash cow moving forward. Sure. But if you want to satisfy your creative side, why does it need to cost you the equivalent of a full time job extra every year? That's not satisfying your creative side. That's being a slave to financial delusion, in my humble opinion. Right? I mean, you can have a creative outlet all you want. Listen, I worked full-time 
and I did a podcast on the side. I worked full-time and I wrote novels on the side. I worked full-time and I wrote plays. I mean, you can have a hobby which satisfies your creative side. And trust me, when you have kids, your creative side is going to be, if you have kids, your creative side is going to be satisfied pretty quickly. But, so, pretty but that's what I'm doing. I'm working full-time and having those things on the side. That's what I'm doing. Yes, but but it's eclipsing the love of your girlfriend and the potential future of your family. So your creative side is is costing you money. It's not making you money. And it might cost you your relationship and it might cost you the chance to be a father. Right? She's going to leave you, right? She she wants to be... Oh, she said she wouldn't. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk to her in a sec, right? Yeah. So she doesn't work, right? Yes, she does. Oh, she works now, right? But she'd quit if you had kids? Yes. Right. And I, I'd actually be in favor of that. Yeah, I assume she would be would be as well, right? Oh, yeah. So she wants to be with you to the point where she's willing to give up being a mom? Yes. Huh. It's wild. Well, maybe you guys just don't really want to have kids that much. But if you don't want to have kids, don't just don't tell me it's because of all of this money-making stuff that you want to do because it's not making any money. In fact, it's costing you a huge amount of money. It might cost you your entire relationship if she decides that she wants to have kids. Is she sort of your age? Uh, she's young. She's 23. Okay, okay, all right. That's why, you know, she doesn't have that on-the-clock feeling, but uh, the maternal instinct does manifest itself. But I do think that I have more value to offer with what's with the projects I have coming. Than you might, but you, the only way you're going to be a successful entrepreneur is the, is, is the way that people win the lottery. It's going to be purely by accident because your planning and your paperwork is woefully deficient. I'm just telling you that as um, an experienced entrepreneur. I mean, if if I was an investor, I'd just say, good luck with that. You don't have a clue what you're doing. I'm just telling you that straight up, right? I mean, that's my, oh. my experience. But Nick, well, let me ask you this. It's a, it's a good reality check. It, it is a good reality check. And you need to, you know, being a creative person is a lot more number crunching and a lot more market research and a lot more figuring things out than most people like to imagine. I mean, I remember... Um, making a film many years ago. It was a finalist in a, the Hollywood Film Festival and didn't make it to the Oscars, but nonetheless, it was, a, it was a good film. And I remember going to see a speech from a director, famous director, I won't mention his name, but, um, and the director said this. He said, this is what it's like to be a director. You wait for a year for the right script to come along. You wait for another year for the people you want to work with to be available. You spend another six months scouting locations. You spend another three months getting everyone arranged, getting everyone together, getting everyone rehearsed, getting everyone ready to shoot. And then you're finally, after a couple of years of getting ready to make a movie, you're standing there and your cameraman comes up to you and says, we've only got time for one shot. We're losing the light. <laughs> this, doesn't, in, in, this doesn't even mention all the financing you, all the financing you have to do, uh, all of the investors you have to get in place. All, I mean... It's crazy. And it comes down to like five minutes where you've got to capture magic like lightning in a bottle. The amount of work that I have to do to produce a podcast is ridiculous. Sort of reminds me of what <laughs> I think Dr. Phil was making some joke about this where I think one of his parents was saying, well, what do you do? You're only on an hour a day. What do you do with the rest of the time? <laughs> it's like, but for him to do that hour takes a staggering yeah. amount of, of work. So behind the scenes here's, here's my, my concern, Nick. I'm... I don't think you have the right 
skill sets around you to help you succeed. I don't think you have the people who say, yeah, 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 it's great to be creative. It's wonderful to be creative, but here's the things that you need to do to have the greatest chance of success. You need to plan. You need to have your spreadsheets. You need to have your drop dead dates. You need to have your measurables. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You need to have a standard of failure. Very, very important when you're an entrepreneur. Like, you know, you see dogs, they're chasing after a car, right? At some yeah. point, they figure out that they can't catch it. And do you know what they do? They stop, they drop their legs, and they turn and go home, right? How do you know yeah. when you failed? Knowing when you failed or what standard you will use to test whether you failed is an essential part of being an entrepreneur. You have to know when to stop pouring good time and good money after bad. You have to have that standard. Otherwise, things drift along, things bump along. And if you do happen to succeed, it will be entirely accidental, which means you're very unlikely to be able to capitalize on that success. And it also means that it's almost impossible, impossible for you to reproduce it. And the success of what I've done here is not just because I get in front of a microphone and talk about whatever's on my mind. I mean, it's just a lot of planning, a lot of figuring things out, a lot of research, a lot of conversations, a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> I mean, it's important. You have to know what you're doing. Success, as you know, is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. Now, you want all the inspiration stuff, which means that it's very unlikely, even if you are successful, that you'll be able to maintain and sustain that success, which is maybe what happened with the last play, the last video thing you were doing and making 120 bucks an hour, it flamed out because you were making money, but you didn't have a plan. And if you're surrounded by people who also don't have a plan, maybe you can be the big creative guy, but you need someone out there. You need the Wozniak to your jobs. You need someone out there who's going to rein you in and keep you focused and who at least is going to do the grunt work of, of figuring out how things are going to happen. Because if everyone's just in there for the creative stuff, you're very unlikely to succeed. It's like golfing, blindfolded. Sure, you'll sink a putt once in a while, but you never win a game. And so if you don't have people out there who are asking you these tough questions and who are making sure that you're making sensible decisions, you're just going to be in this, this workaholic blur of the now. And if you do happen to trip randomly over a piece of diamond, you're not going to be able to hold on to it for long because you don't have the structure. You don't have the planning. You don't have the methodology that the system's in place to make sure that success can be grown and maintained and replicated because, you know, you're not going to write the next Monopoly, odds are. And even the guy who wrote Monopoly didn't make a success of it, ended up being bought out. And it was other people who made a success out of it. And he made like 500 bucks for the whole damn thing. So reproducibility is really important. Structure is really important. Planning is really important. Paperwork is really important. So here's my concern, Nick. And, you know, take this as annoying older entrepreneur guy telling you this. This okay. is my prediction, and it's a heartbreaking prediction. I think you're going to end up neither as an entrepreneur, nor a wealthy man, nor a husband, nor a father. My concern is that the way you're heading, you're not going to get anything you want. And I'm committed to doing my best to try and help you get what you want. But that means telling you, that you don't have any systems, you don't have any plan. You're just pouring massive amounts of work into a variety of things, keeping your fingers crossed. And you're not treasuring your time. You're not valuing your time. 
you're not putting a dollar value, a price value on your time. You're just working and working and working and working. You know, if you're a farmer, you don't just sort of randomly run around the woods throwing seeds. You can do that for 18 hours a day, and it's a lot of work. You've got to climb through all the bushes. You've got to throw all these seeds. You're just not going to get a lot of food out of it. And you say, well, I've worked really hard as a farmer. It's like, well, you, you worked hard, but did you work smart? Right? Did you get your right crops? Did you put in your fertilizer? Did you dig down the holes? Did you put up the scarecrows? Did you cover everything over? Did you make sure there was enough irrigation? Did you do all the smart stuff, which means you can actually work less but get way more food out of things? There's an old rude saying that I remember when I first got into the entrepreneurial world. And there's an old, it's, it's rude and it's coarse, but it's instructive. There's an old bull and there's a young bull at the top of the uh, hill. And at the bottom are all of these cows. And the young bull says, let's go, let's go. I'm running down the hill and I'm going to bang a cow. I'm going to go right now and I'm going to run and I'm going to charge and I'm going to work. I'm going to sprint. I'm going to bang a cow. And the old bull says, you want to run down a hill and bang a cow? He's like, yes. Bull says, no. That's not what you want to do. Let me tell you what you want to do. You want to walk down the hill and bang all of them. (laughs) Because if you go too fast, if you're in a rush, if you just pour work in, if you don't plan, if you're not patient, if you don't take things slowly, um, methodically, methodically, sorry, (laughs) brain fraud, methodically, patiently, persistently, you don't get what you want in life. And I don't think, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, Nick, I would say that the way you're going, you're not going to get the girl, you're not going to get the fatherhood, you're not going to get the wealth, you're not going to get the entrepreneur stuff. And that would be obviously the worst thing ever, right? Yeah. So if you wanted, I mean, I'm not saying you have to be a father. <laughs> Can't tell people that kind of stuff, right? But if you are going to work this hard, be skeptical, be be critical. Get someone who knows what the hell they're doing in an entrepreneurial situation to come in and really give you advice and be be skeptical towards your own plans. The number of show ideas I throw out is ridiculous. I saw there's a video from way back in the day. You know, the only real Aerosmith album I know is Pump. It's a great album. There goes my old girlfriend. A great song. Anyway, creepy guys, but a great song. And I saw some documentary on it once. And they're like, oh, you know, we just come up with all these names for these albums. We have no idea, you know. Like You, you get really desperate, you know. <laughs> like uh, uh, Inspector Number 9. You know, sure that's somewhere in there because it's something I saw on a... <laughs> You know, shoebox has inspected by inspector number nine. Let's make that the album cover. And so, yeah. right. And um, it is uh, it is a, a lot of work and you need people. And, and you can see, you know, in this documentary, it's probably worth watching. Janie's Got a Gun, which is, I guess, one of Steve Tyler's most famous songs, or at least it used to be. Um, they have this producer in there who, Looks completely dweeby, like too dweeby to be a dungeon master. And 
And Steve Tyler is like, oh, this is the beginning. Do you like it? Do you really like it? I can't tell. Do you like it? He's really, you know, messed up and nervous and insecure about this song that turns out to be um, not not just a hit, but, you know, a pretty, pretty powerful piece of music. And there's just a lot of preparation. And there's a lot of work. Everybody wants to rush up on stage and start singing. But how much work do you have to do beforehand? And you want to get out there, be an entrepreneur, make lots of money. But I think without the planning without the structure, without the skepticism. I don't know how it's going to happen. Or if it does, I don't know how it's going to be sustained. And I don't want you to end up in a situation like you did with your last venture that was successful, which blew apart, right? Yeah, I appreciate the feedback. There's a lot less interpersonal conflict when you're following the paperwork. You know, everyone agree on this plan. We've all worked on this plan. Does everyone agree on this plan? Then there's a lot less conflict when things go when things, when you get the hiccups and eruptions as you always do as an entrepreneur, there's just there's just fewer conflicts because everyone's agreed on the plan. Doesn't mean no conflicts, but at least you've got some place to refer back to. Mm-hmm. Does she want to talk to me at all, or? Oh, I'm coming. Oh, uh, Yeah, you're on. Um, what's her name? Hi, Stefan. How you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? Um, all right. I'm a bit nervous. I never thought I would actually. With you and uh, I think you're tired now. Wait till I talk for a while. <laughs> just kidding. Um, can I give <laughs> well, you a name? A Do you want to just give me a nonsense name or a real name or just a first name? It's fine. Uh, I'll give you my new name. My name is Diany. All right, I'm pretty white for that. <laughs> Diany. <laughs> you can call me Diana if you want. Uh, if you don't mind, I. I'm, I'm sure I'll swallow half my tongue if I try that too often, so I appreciate your patience with that. <laughs> That's all right. I'm used to it. Everybody so, does. Diane, how much do you want to be a mom? Like Very, one to badly. Ten. Very badly. That's by far my biggest dream. So it's is it like 10 out of your like life's goals and ambitions? Yeah. If, yeah. He, if, he, if he doesn't want to have kids at all, are you going to stay with him? <sighs> Would you give up kids to be with him? It's a long life. Uh, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm getting a bit emotional. Um, That's good. That's I got no problem with that. <laughs> so we talked about it previously, and um, the thing is, I always knew I wanted to have family, but I never thought I would because I thought uh, that's not for everyone, and I wasn't. Uh, blast of it i'm catholic if i, I apologize if i use words like that like that's blast, fine, but fine. i just thought it wasn't for me and uh ever since i met him i started imagining that it could actually be possible to have these things and uh, at the beginning of the relationship he actually used to talk about it with me for a good first year of relationships we used to talk about kids and we used to talk about marriage and all this kind of stuff and he seemed he seemed enthusiastic about it as well like i mean we used to go out a lot and used to travel quite a bit. And we always took a lot of videos of it. And we used to start the by saying things like Gabriel, Alice, that was supposed to be our kids' names. Oh, that's when mommy and dad first met. It's the first, first time doing this and that. And after any of that, he just sat down with me, had a conversation. He said uh, he didn't want to mislead me and he never saw himself having kids. And that was... Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Diane, how long was that after you started going out that this changed? Uh, about a year, I would say. About a year. So that was like a year and a half ago or so. 
And uh, now, did he did he sort of say I might not want to have kids, or or did he say no, he like said, did he go from I want to have kids to I don't want to have kids? He went from uh, most likely we will have kids. We never even said we're gonna have kids. We just used to talk about kids. Like for me, it was just a given. At this point, he never said oh I want to have kids. We just talked like well we have kids. That was just it. When we have kids, this and that, and we used to talk about how they would look like and their names and the sports they would play together and the things we would do as a family. And he went from that to just talking about it less and less and less gradually. At some day, he just sit out with me and he said uh, he probably would never want to have kids. He won't say it's impossible because we never know what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's very, very unlikely to happen. And that I was... said you should proceed with a relationship knowing that you'll never have kids. You said most likely. No, you never said never. But anyhow, but that was the first conversation. And after that, uh, we had some other conversations about it. And he kept saying the same thing. And for for a while, I actually thought about leaving. And I told him because I couldn't imagine myself never being a mom. But uh, at the same time, I couldn't imagine myself having kids with anyone else either. Because uh, I definitely don't want to be a single mom. That's for sure. And Nick, can you and hear me? I- yeah, yeah, I can hear quite. Well. I'm sorry. Am I too far from? The no, microphone? no. I, I just I don't know if Nick can hear me if I've you've got headphones on or what. No, no. I I took the headphones off. Okay. Yeah, so can both hear perfectly Nick, right now. you you know you didn't mention this part, right? That that you had said to Diane for a year and a half that you wanted to have kids. No, it was uh, it was like, hey, you know, look at that kid. Oh, you know, that could be. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, Don't even, Nick, I'll, you did not say that you led Diane on for a year and a half talking positively about having kids. You never mentioned that the entire hour that we've been talking, and you certainly didn't mention it in the uh, message that you sent to us. It was never said in a serious tone. Oh, for God's sake. What do you mean it was never said? And you're talking about the names of your future children, but you were kidding? It was, uh, it was, uh, it's a lot of, you know, sometimes the idea is better than the reality. It's just like, it's, it's, it's a playful thing. It's a playful thing to dangle children in front of a woman who desperately wants to have children, but it's just kind of playful and not serious. I don't, I don't quite follow. But when I found out how that, that she was in it for real, that's when I made it absolutely clear because I, I, I thought we could have. Wait, wait, I mean, wait. Her, you talked her, about, her, wait, hang on, hang on. You talked about what your future kids would look like, but you didn't think she was in it for real? No, because at 21, you can be abstract about these things. I've, I've done it before. It was no problem. So you talked about wanting to have kids, and she believed abstract. you. I mean, Diane, you thought it was serious, right? Yes. So you must have talked about it. In a way, I mean, I'm going to respect Diane's intelligence enough to know that she knows the difference between when a man is joking and when he's not. So, Nick, you talked about having kids in a way that she thought was serious. Not imminent, right? But serious. Did you know that she knew it was serious or thought it was serious? The second I realized that this was misleading, I cleared it up. What? I'm I'm really confused here. You talk positively about having children. You talk about their names. You talk about what they're going to look like, and then you 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 seem surprised that she took you seriously. Um, it's never been an issue with dating in the past. The uh, people that know me 
it's 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 a vibe I give off. I'm not a family man type of person, and it's it's just no, no. You were talking about, I mean, unless Diane's mistaken, which I don't think she is, but you were talking about the names of your kids, what they were going to look like, which is completely leading around as to you want to have kids, right? You understand that, right? I understand that, but we, we we've had this talk before. It's been cleared up. It's uh, it sounds hazy right now talking about it, but we've had this discussion. Diane, was it hazy for you for the first year and a half that uh, he wanted to have kids? Was it like kind of a maybe, or was it just a well? That's you know we're on we're on, in sync with that. <sighs> sorry, um, oh sorry, I'm just way too emotional. Could you repeat the question, please? Because I was counting my head. Sure, no problem. For. For the first year and a half, when he was talking about the names of the kids and what they were going to look like, you didn't have any doubt, if I understand this correctly, you didn't have any doubt that he was no, wanted to have was, kids, right? With you. No, I was certain that uh, we would have kids. I never thought they would be right away. I always yeah. thought that would be like maybe five, seven years from now, but that would eventually happen. I, I never thought that he was ready to be a father. But I thought he he thought about the idea and that was that was exciting to him, even if it wasn't a far, far away future, but there still was something that he would like to to try at some point in his life with me. So that's pretty much it, I guess. And did it I know I asked before if it changed dramatically, like it went from yes to no. Did it change suddenly? Like was it just sort of one day where it's like no, that was really, as I, I don't know if you could answer him before, but I tried to say was that uh, we would eventually talk about it less and less and less. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you did mention and, that, right. And and after a while, he just sat down with me and he opened spoke about it and he said uh, it was very unlikely that we would ever have kids. And uh, ever since that day, we talked about it several other times. And uh, for a while, I really considered living because uh, I couldn't see myself not being a mother. But at the same time, I decided to stay simply because I didn't see myself having kids with another man either. Because I want my kids to so much have a father. I don't want to be a single mom, that's for sure. And second, I want my kids to remind me of their father at the same time. I don't want to have kids and see traces of them, it doesn't matter if it's their looks or it's their personality or it's that, uh, I don't know, the accent or the way they walk or, or simply if they, I'm sorry, I don't want to see me, but if not smart enough or I don't even know, that, that don't please me, like something I don't like about their father that I see in them. Because even the things that I don't like about Nick, when I think about seeing those traces in, in a child, I think I will... Yeah, pissed about it, but I'll find it funny at the same time because it will remind me of him, you understand? And when I picture myself having kids with other men that don't look like a man I love, don't look like a man I appreciate, that have uh, personality traits that are like, attached to somebody that I'm not in love with, I feel like I would still love my kids, but I wouldn't be as good as a mom. And I don't want to be a mom if I don't want to be, if I can't be the best mother I can possibly be, you understand? So at the same time that... I thought about leaving and maybe uh, being single for a while and then meeting new people and maybe end up marrying them and having kids with them. That was that was not possible because I didn't see myself falling in love with other people and didn't see myself marrying other people and having their kids because, uh, I don't know, I just couldn't. So that's why I decided to stay because in my mind it was like, I don't want to say less of two years because it's not even I'm very happy with, happy with him, don't get me wrong, mm. but I don't think... 
I would ever be complete without being a mom. And uh, I don't think I would ever be complete either being married and having kids with someone else. You understand? I do. I do. Now, it's a pretty important question though, Diane. Would you have started dating Nick if you would have known that he didn't want to have children? Honestly, um, honestly, I don't know, because when I started dating, I wasn't looking forward to dating whatsoever. I had just gotten out from a previous relationship, like maybe five months earlier, and I was still pretty hang up to my ex. So uh, I have known Nick for the exact five months before I started dating, and we, we became good friends, at least I thought we were good friends. And, uh, and he's kind of, you know, Trying to hit on me, and then eventually I was like, no, that's a very good guy. And it certainly worked hard in the last one because he wasn't that much of a nice guy. And and I just tried, I just tried. And a couple of months in, I really, really, really felt the playing love with him. And the ideas of uh, children were already there because even before when we first met, it was I know by that time I knew it was a joke. But one of our very first conversations, he said as a joke that our kids would look like very well, like they would look like models because let's see, I'm mixing, he's mixing, he just said they look like models. So in my mind, in that context, and the more we started dating, the more we started talking about our future together, I never, I never thought it was possible that we would never have kids. But at the same time, I was very friends with me. It's very complicated. I really, I'm not sure. Maybe if you started dating before my ex and I knew from the beginning that he never wanted to have kids since uh, I was actually thinking about my future and thinking about having a relationship and maybe forming a family, maybe no, I wouldn't have started dating him. But when I started dating him, I wasn't thinking about uh, having a family. I wasn't thinking about... Uh, but it wouldn't have gotten serious, serious, right? Yeah, I was, I was not looking for anything serious. I just wanted to kind of restart my life slowly you know one thing at a time i was not reading that vibe back then so i don't know do you do you but miss him diane when he works these crazy hours if i miss him yeah he was saying that he's of working course. like i know that you just yeah, had the three weeks I but I, uh, I, I text him all the time and say hey, i miss him little cute emotional stuff yeah of course i miss him but i understand and i'm supportive of it and he knows that i know he um He's working hard to beat our future, and I'm very proud of him for that. So, yes, I miss him, but it's understandable. Because if he became, also, a, sorry, if he became a father, I mean, he he might very well not be there. I mean, I, I've known women who have very, very workaholic husbands or fathers to their children, and they tell me they feel like single moms. I mean, they don't have the same financial worries necessarily that single moms have, but as far as their husbands or the father of their children's involvement in their children's lives, they feel like single moms. I understand that. I, I honestly don't think that I would feel like a single mom, first of all, because I would not be. And second, because uh, he's he's not there often, but when he is, he's very present. If, I don't know if that makes any sense, but he makes up for it, as he said himself. Uh, so so I don't think that would be big of a problem and I would understand once again that he's doing this for the family so that would be very appreciated so I but do you think do you think that your your children would rather have I mean if, if they love their father they would rather have their father around more than less right 
So you could sort of make that choice about whether you're willing to have him work that hard away from the family. But what do you think your children would want the most in a father? Of course, the kids would prefer a father that's more present. But uh, as he said himself, uh, if he doesn't work as hard and I don't work as hard, uh, we're going to live in a cardboard box. So I don't want a father that's present all the time either, but it's not providing for the family because unfortunately... No, I mean, of course. Can I, can I make a guess here, guys? Sure. Are you both very attractive people physically? Uh, I find myself <laughs> pretty, but I, I don't know. I we're, not, we're, we're nines. Yeah, we are cute. Right. Is there any concern that you have, Diane, that you might not be able to find as attractive a man to be the father of your children? No, uh, that's going to sound cocky, but I have been proposed to six or seven times in my lifetime by supposed best friends that would just fall of me and propose to me. That's, that's really not the case. I know I would find several other men to, to start a life with. So what is, uh, and I'm not saying there's any reason to not feel this way, but tell me what is so special about Nick that you would be willing to give up what you call your biggest dream, which is to be a mom in order to be with him, because you don't actually get to be with him that much. This is what I can't quite understand, right? And I'm just looking at this from the outside. So, and I'm just a guy on the internet. So take, you know, don't take anything I'm saying seriously. These are just questions popping into my head. But Diane, you say that you'd be willing to give up being a mom in order to be with Nick, but Nick's working 100 hours a week or 80 hours a week. You don't get but, to be with him that much anyway. No, but honestly, that depends. Some weeks are worse than others. Some weeks I really don't see him, but when it's regular weeks, if I can call it that way, uh, half of his home, he can do it from Hex of his work, he can do it from home. So even if I'm not there besides him, uh, cuddling or whatever, or I don't know, watching a movie or together, I can still come every now and then and, and have a kiss and we'll talk and we have our meals together, we have dinner together. And usually like he studies a lot, but he will bring his books to bed and I'll bring my own books to bed and we'll read side by side. And uh, we will cuddle every now and then too. And every other night uh, we just don't do anything. We don't don't watch movies, we don't read, we don't study, we don't do anything. We just stay in bed before we fall asleep for like a good hour and a half and we just talk. And that's at least twice a week, I would say, in average. Okay, so you do see him somewhat. But how do you uh, feel, right? Because you got kind of emotional earlier, and I wanted to sort of figure that one out. How do you feel about this change from talking about how wonderful your kids are going to look and what their names are going to be to... I've heard two things. He says, I don't want to have kids at all, but you say... He says it's very unlikely that you're going to have kids. So I don't know if it's not at all or very unlikely, which are two very different things. One is kind of more tortuous than the other. The other one is more clear. You said it's like a 95% chance we won't have kids. And is that is that true, um, Nick? Is it 95 Like there's still a small chance you might want to have kids? Well, I, in order to hedge <laughs> her getting her hopes up, I said she should proceed uh-huh. with the relationship knowing that I will not be giving her children. I said I wouldn't be ruling it out, but she should. It's so little that she should proceed uh, telling herself that it won't happen. So that's zero percent. Like you, you might as well have had your balls shot off in a war, right? Living at zero percent chance we, we, for kids. That's that. what you want Diane to understand, right? Yeah. No, I was gonna get. I was gonna go get snipped, but then then it would have it would have felt uh, like real zero percent, and uh, she. 
she wanted me because she's seen an interview with Cernovich saying that he picked up chicks at the club till he was like 35 before he settled down and became a dad. So I guess that sort of plays in her mind when she sees all these uh, all these great dads telling how when they were younger, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, yes, but, yeah, but I, I think that I think that Mike changed when he met the woman, as did I. I mean, I was never a dying to become a dad kind of guy. But when I met the right, but you guys have already known each other for years. So it's not like you're just going to meet the right person and change your mind. In fact, it seems like you were more open to having kids before you had spent more time with Diane, which is a painful thing to, to sort of recognize or realize, but uh, that's not like, I just want to be clear, Diane, that's not the pattern. I don't know about Mike's story, but I can tell you for myself, that's not the pattern that happened with me. When I met the woman who became my wife, then I wanted to become a father and I became very desperate to become a father. It wasn't that years after I telling her I wanted to become a father, years later saying, I um, I don't, right? When I met the woman, I went from eh to yes, but he's gone from yes to no over the time no. that he's known you. And no, that's it was, it was never yes. Right? Before her, before her, it was never yes. But from what I, from what he told me, and uh, so like his family as well and friends, he never ever wanted to have kids. And then when it started going out, he started talking about kids. That was the very first time. All his friends that would hear him talk about it would they would be very very surprised. They would be very very surprised that we moved in together because they never. But he talked could have been playing you. You understand that, right? And you know, Nick, no disrespect, but I'm a guy too, right? He could have been playing you. He could have been telling you what you want to hear so that you'd get committed to him. I, I understand that's possible, but that's really, I never thought he would. And to this day, I don't think that's what he did. At least I hope that's not what he did. I never meant to convey that seriously. No, come, Nick, Nick. Well, no, 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 no. That's not an answer, man. Come on. You can't tell a woman that. who desperately wants to become a mom, here are the baby names. Here's what our kids are going to look like. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to be like models because we're both mixed. It's going to be fantastic. We're God's Photoshop. But I never meant it seriously. You can't. I mean, that's not. That's not believable in any way, shape, or form. Come on. If you, if you would have been in the room, you would have picked up on it. I mean, it's it's really. Are you saying uh, that Diane yeah. doesn't have any idea when you're making a joke about? Are you you making a joke about what she most desperately wants in life, to the point where she believes it, but she just doesn't figure out that you're only joking. I think because it was so deeply rooted in her, it made her want to believe it. And, and you didn't know that enough about her to not make those jokes. You didn't the know that she really, really wanted it. You didn't know that she was so desperate to have children with you in particular that you thought it would just be a fine subject for a joke that she believed for years. She believed for years. It wasn't for a year. It was for less than a year. For the full year. It was yeah. for less. A year. A Let's year. just make it a year. I don't want to argue about the days on either side. That's not the point. Second, Okay, well, what counts is that the second I saw that she was really convinced, I cleared it up. Oh, man, this is just gross. You're not being honest here. I'm telling you that. And this, this makes me think, in my own opinion, right, just me, that this is a game for you, that you are playing her. You can't talk about baby names and what your kids are going to look like for, and have her believe it for a year and then just say, nope, just kidding. It was, you just misunderstood me, honey. Come on. It's never been a problem, Steph. What do you mean it's never been a problem? It's never been a problem in the past. You, 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 Pip, dating's changed. You, you, you just, you say I love you within 10 seconds and then it's like, ha, ha, ha. And then it's like, you know, it's, it's very, 
it's very surface level sort of like cinematic picturing. It's like, oh, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be the mom of my kids. And it's, it's, there's context to this. So that's not, so you just said it. Like, like every other girl you ever dated. So that's what I am. Is that what I am? No, I hate boy. Anyhow. I know you're mad right now, and honestly, I always care when you're mad, but right now I don't care because I don't even know anything anymore. I mean, it's painful for you, Diane, right? And and hearing that it was just supposed to be some kind of joke doesn't solve the problem, right? Because when you you talked about it earlier, I mean, it was really a strong strong feeling for you, right, That, that you believed this. Yes. And you invested your heart and your mind and your life into this, and it's kind of like an insult to injury to say, well, you know, maybe she's just not smart enough to know what I'm joking or something. That's not a reasonable way to deal with the problem, in my opinion. Yeah. <sighs> uh, I don't know. I, <sighs> I mean, you, you, you kind of got in deep. With Nick, right? I mean, in, in terms of your heart and your, you were planning a future. And yeah, and I know it's down the road and so on. But, you know, you plan to get to Vegas before you get to Vegas. But you know you're heading to Vegas, right? You're not heading to some other place, right? So you kind of got yourself aligned and you got your heart into this for a life together, for a family together, for kids together, for that, right? That's what your understanding was, at least for a year, of where things were heading, right? And then, like, rug out from under you, right? As they say, yeah. and how do how do you feel about about that? Uh, it's very very painful. It's very confusing. It's very devastating. It's very disappointing. It's very uncertain. It's very I don't even know what other adjectives to use. <gasps> and I really really thought at some point that, that maybe he just didn't love me anymore that's why he didn't talk about this kind of stuff anymore it made me really insecure and uh but eventually i stopped thinking that because as i said before it was not that like he wanted to have kids before me and then it changed that's not true everybody always says he never wanted to have kids and he would always make fun of people that had kids and i would say oh i don't know this other friend of ours is gonna become like i don't really oh yeah so poor him that sucks his life is over whatever versus started dating uh, he wouldn't be like this anymore. It's not with me. And then it, it changed it all back within within a year. So I just thought maybe because he was, you know, selling his, his shares in his company and a lot of things were changing that, the, and, you know, financial, the financial aspect of it is really important to him, which is understandable. So maybe that, that played into it as well. Or that he simply wasn't as into me. But then I stopped thinking that he wasn't as into me before because, he we would uh, get deeper deeper in our relationship. We have been living together for near already by then, but but the way we related we were relating to each other was changing as well in a positive, very positive way. His ways with me were changing too in a very very positive way. And I said himself just recently went to my country and he met my entire family. And uh, that was a very, first of all, that was a very expensive trip. He denied uh, some other gigs to go do it, which he never does. He never denies renting. And, I'm and, sorry, just uh, out of curiosity, still, where, where is your country? I am Brazilian. Brazilian. Okay, sorry, go ahead. And, 
and he still keeps in touch with my my entire family pretty much at least uh, once a week especially my nephew my nephew is actually the other the only other person in my family that can speak a little bit of english he's nine years old and he was surprisingly great with them we spent like three weeks and a half in brazil and they were together all the time they were like best pals and he calls him uncle nick and said like uncle nick is the best uncle in the world and this like all the time they game together they talk about videos together because he has a little youtube channel so no nick, nick is very charming right nick is very charming when he wants to be yeah like like my nephew has this thing that's really really hard to convince him to eat because he has tons of allergies so he was just not eating a lot and uh, when he does it's just like he feels kind of sick so it's really hard to convince him to eat and even for his mother, even for me, even for anyone in the family, but Nick somehow would make him meet within 10 minutes. That was amazing. Everybody said like, he was good, he's such a great dad, and he would just like kind of smile on the side. And when he's around the, his best friend's kid as well, he's great with her. And he seems to have fun with them. And he seems to, whenever he watches like little movies, there's like a father and son, not girls, I don't like, but especially a father and son thing, he gets emotional about it. And he says that's a cool part of being a dad, but that's just only the good part and the bad part it doesn't make up for it so right. that's why too like he sees kids in, in ever not all the time i won't say it's often i would be lying but every now and then he sees a father and a son doing something he thinks that's pretty amazing but then he says oh but that's just the nice part but after they come home the kid's gonna cry and you this and that and, that and that's just not i want for me and uh and that hurts every time he says that that hurts i even ask him just like don't don't say anything at all. Because, okay, but uh, let, me, let me ask you this, Diane. And yeah, I, I, listen, sorry, I, I, I understand it's I mean, very frustrating, very confusing. I, I really, really understand that. But let me ask you this. Yes. Do you think it's possible that if you were somehow to have children with Nick, yeah. that Nick might say or do things that would cause his children to believe something, to put their trust in what he said, to accept what he was saying as a promise, as a commitment. And this might go on for quite some time. But then later, that he would say, oh, you, you misunderstood me. I was only kidding. I wasn't serious. It didn't really matter. I don't want to do it. I never wanted to do it. Uh, you know. Honestly, that's the only... That's the only aspect he ever let me down. Everything he ever said he would do, he always he always did. And he still does. That's the very first and only time he ever let me down uh, when it comes to kids. But everything else he ever said he would do for me and for us, which is, I don't want to get into details, but he has done a lot, quite, quite a bit. No, but me. this and is the one that matters, stuff. right? The most. You, yeah. you probably would trade one of those other ones where he changed his mind for him not changing his mind on this one, right? Yes, sir, but I, I just really think that uh, I, I may be misleading myself, I don't know, but I honestly think that once he achieves his financial security and once uh, he grows older and more mature, uh, he will see that even at parts that he thinks are bad parts of being a father, I actually... Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. Well. You at 23 are saying that Nick in his late 20s, once he grows up and becomes more mature? Yes, because I believe... Um, years, he's like more than half a decade older than you. Yeah, And don't, believe- don't be in a relationship with someone because you want them to change in some fundamental way. Right? You, you can waste... You can waste I, I'm sorry, I'll be quiet in a sec. You can waste a lot of years, Diane, 
crossing your fingers, hoping someone's going to change. And it gives them a lot of power over you. Don't be in a relationship with someone, in my opinion, because you think they're fundamentally going to change. Like, I can't date a woman who's a Zoroastrian or a Rastafarian and saying, well, as soon as she becomes a Christian I'm the, or, 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 or an atheist or whatever, I'm there, right? I don't, I don't think I'm expecting him to change. I'm expecting him to grow older. To grow I think people get to a certain stage of their life in different times. And I just think he's not there yet. I'm not saying he's ever going to be. He may as well never be. But uh, I believe it's possible. And that's why I'm saying that's, not, that's one reason. The other reason is like... But he's telling I you, he's telling you very clearly to make your decisions like he's already snipped. And he can't be unsnipped, right? He's saying to you, make your decision like, I, like I'm never, ever going to give you children. You are never going to be a mother with me. Ever. I understand that, but there's other things too that he has said before that will never change, and they have changed. And that's, I think that's everyone. I think people change their minds as they grow older. I just was as I don't want him to change the person he is. I just I hope and expect that as he achieves certain things financially, that achieves a certain age and a certain. And what if just, you're wrong, Diane? Diane, what I'm if sorry? you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Will you what be willing I'm to? Wrong? Will you will that's, you be willing to live? Own. Hang on. Will you be willing to live childless? To never be a mother, to never hold your baby, to never breastfeed, to never help your child learn how to walk, to never buy those little booties, to never change a diaper, to never breastfeed. Will you be willing to give all of that up if you're wrong about him and he is right about, like he's, he's in his late 20s, right? He's not like 14 trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. I mean, he's already an adult. His brain has matured four or five years ago. So that's my question. Will you be willing to live with a motherless existence, never being a mother for the next 70, 80 years, not being a mother, not being a grandmother, not being a great-grandmother, having so, none of that? I don't, I don't, I honestly, honestly don't see myself having babies with anyone else. I really don't. That's the thing. I thought about leaving. I told him about it at least two or three times, and I almost did. But then again, I think, okay, why am I doing this? Because I want to be a mother. Okay, so I'm going to find someone else and have their kids. And I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the hole inside of my heart either. Because I have the opportunities and I have, I have at least a couple very good men there. Even if I don't talk to them anymore, but I know they're still there and they would be willing to take me to more if I wanted to. And these are men that, they are in their in their late twenties, early thirties. They have a good age. Age they they have uh, they have quite a bit of money, and uh, they're very into me. And they come from good families, and they would be willing to knock me up tomorrow and and put it on tomorrow. And that's all great. But when I imagine my life with them and having their babies, yes, I would be happy to be a mom. But they wouldn't. I don't know. Just I may be wrong. I may be mistaken. Maybe I have to snap out of it. But. I, I don't see myself being complete either because I want to see the resemblance between the father of my kids and but my kids. Be, and it's not, I'm and not I'm saying, look, I don't know whether you guys should stay together or not, but it could be some new guy. It doesn't have to be one of the guys from the past. I mean, that's uh, that's a false dichotomy. That's a false choice, right? Saying, well, it either has to be Nick I, or one of the guys who proposed to me in the past. I mean, you're a young woman. You're an attractive woman. You're, I mean, you could have options, right? Yes, I, I know, but... 
it's very hard for me to really to really I don't know it just I, I can easily talk about people I can be very outgoing and make friends easily and stuff if I really want to but it's hard for me to really, really trust someone and to really deeply honestly care for that person and devote myself to that person like I had the one serious relationship before Nick um, but, but how do you trust Nick he said he wanted to have kids and now he says he was only joking for that year that's That's yes, that, that that has shaken my trust. But at least, uh, at least I. The thing is, I don't, I don't honestly know if he was really joking. It was really I. No, I don't I think, think he was joking. Enough to understand if he was joking or not, I really didn't think he was joking. However, if he says he was, I don't think I don't think joking is the proper, the proper way to call it. He says like. He's, he likes to say, see, he works in the movie industry, he said himself, and he says it's like watching something, but just like the best part of the movie, and you don't see all the hustle that I went through to get there. So he really say it as that, and for him, it's, it's okay to imagine a lot of stuff regarding life just like that. And uh, I kind of knew of him, but I never thought that was one of these things. No, I, uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was either. But listen, guys, I mean, I, I certainly wish you the very best, and I, I hope that you'll continue to have conversations about this stuff um nick i mean i've just met you so i apologize i just i have a tough time sort of getting that it was just a joke and the can whole i ask time. you one last question please i hate to go down like that like yeah go ahead do you honestly think uh you think i should leave i i don't ever feel comfortable telling people what to do but i'll tell I you know. i'll tell you what i would feel in this situation uh and i i think um, i would feel very angry I would feel very angry at had being led led along, right? I, I don't know how what the phrase is that the kids use these days, but when I was a kid, it was like leading a woman on, right? Oh, I really, really want to get married. I'd love to get married. I'd love to get married. And then, you know, when and she's accepted all of this, and then you say, well, actually, no, I was only kidding. But she's already moved in. She's already committed. She's already introduced you to her family. She's already embedded. She's already given you her heart and 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 all of that. And then saying, oh, no, I was just kidding. I, I, didn't, I didn't never want to get married. I was only kidding about that. Like, I would be very angry uh, and, and hurt, but more angry at, at being led along, at, at being told that this was the state of mind and then finding out not only that the state of mind has changed, which can happen, but also that I was kind of being blamed for being dumb enough to think that this, you know, person was telling the truth when, when, when they were only joking, you know, that they wouldn't make any, that, that didn't make any sense. So I, I think as far as the anger goes, that's how I would feel. Um, and to me, it, it has to do with the honesty that comes out of someone when this kind of problem comes up, right? So, when a man comes up to you and says, let's go out, and you say, well, I want to be, be a mom, and he's like, oh, this is, like, fantastic. Uh, you know, our kids will be beautiful, and here's what their names will be, and here's what they're going to look like, and I can't wait to be a dad, and blah, blah, blah. And this goes on for a year. You know that women, when you when a woman has sex with a man, that there's this this chemical bonding that happens. And, and it's monogamy, right? It's, he's the one. It, it's something that happens. And I think men, men kind of know this. And, you know, women, women know about men's sort of sexual infatuation and so on. But particularly when a woman uh, makes love to a man, uh, particularly repetitively, 
she bonds. She bonds. And then it becomes hard to think of other men. And that's good if you're compatible and you're going to be together for your whole life. You kind of want to have that monogamy because otherwise things get messy, complicated, ugly, and divorcey. So um, I think that either he did feel that he wanted kids and then changed his mind, in which case he should say, I changed my mind, I'm incredibly sorry, I led you on, I was sincere at the time, something's changed, and, and that gives you a choice, right? But Or he was playing you, right? Like he was telling you what you wanted to hear, oh yeah, kids, oh wonderful, oh yeah, here's think- what they're going to look like and so on, in which case, you know, I think you've got... Do you, pers- do, do you personally think he was playing me? Do you think that currently, like today, but just listening to us right now, do you think he's serious about me? I can't answer whether he was playing you for sure, but I can tell you I personally don't believe the I was only joking about having kids for a year. I mean, I, I, just, I don't believe that at all. I, I mean, again, I mean, I'm not in a relationship with the guy, and this is just my outside perspective, but I don't think that a lot of really frank stuff is going on uh, at the moment. I think that that's kind of a cop-out to say, oh, I was only joking. You must be kind of silly to think I was serious. I don't think you're silly. I think that if it's your biggest desire and the man's telling you he's going to provide it to you, I don't think he gets to later say, psych, just kidding. I don't think that's fair or reasonable. So I think that you should listen to him. If you if, if it is your biggest dream and he says he's not going to make you a mom, I think you should listen to him. I mean, I, he's being very honest, at least as far as this goes, that um, I think you should treat the relationship as if he's had a vasectomy as if he's been snipped and he's unable think, to bear children. So you think he's never ever gonna that is impossible he ever change his mind? Like just coming to men in general, you think men are ever like that and then later on in life they change or that's that doesn't happen very often. Well I mean you you, you can you can save your money or you can play the lottery. Right? Now if you say to me, well Steph, are you can you guarantee me that I'm never gonna win the lottery? I'm gonna say, well no, I can't guarantee that you're never gonna win the lottery but I still don't think it's a good idea to just play the lottery, right? I mean, sure, it's possible that, that he, he could wake up tomorrow and say, I desperately want children. It's possible. Well, I understand that. So what you're saying is that this doesn't happen very often that men to a certain point of their lives, they don't want kids, and then afterwards they want kids. That's not very... Well, when he, tells you, when he tells you that he's not going to give you children... When he tells you he doesn't want to have children, when he tells me he doesn't want to have children, when he neglects to tell me that he told you for a year that he did desperately want to have children, which is kind of important, which I've already mentioned, it's not very honest to me, just listen to him. He's telling you the truth. He's telling you the truth. You are not going to become a mother. Now, you can sit here and you can say, okay, well, maybe in a couple of years and maybe, 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 right? But that's going to be torture for you. And hugely risky. And as you know, Diane, you're at the peak of attractiveness for a woman, right? If you wait until you're in your mid to late 20s, it's just going to be tougher. The good guys are going to be gone, right? Because the good guys get snapped up pretty quickly. And so let's say you're 28 or 29 and you finally realize that he's not going to give you kids or whatever. And then you go out into the dating market. Who's left? You're older, you have less attractiveness, you have more urgency because you're getting older and your eggs are getting older, and there are fewer good men around. You understand, it's not risk-free to stay. There's a lot of risks in staying. I understand that, and that's my choice at the moment, but do you understand? 
this is the last question. I swear I'll let you go, Sergeant Butter. So much. Do you think this menace here is about me, Stefan? I'm sorry. Do you say that again? Do you think this menace here is about me? Like, do you think this is my fault? It is like that if I was another woman, if I was maybe good enough or different, I don't know, he would maybe want to have kids with me. Do you think I'm maybe the problem? Not exactly the problem because he never wanted before me. As far as I know, as far as his family told me, his friends for the heat and stuff. But you think that maybe if, if he cared more about me, he would think about being a dad? I don't know. I don't know that. But I will say this, Diane, that if I had to go out on a limb and guess about, I, I think Nick, a very smart guy and and uh, a very hardworking guy and, and lots that, that's there, that there is there to, to look positively upon. But I think that Nick tries to get the best out of a situation in the moment. And this is what I talked to him about with regards to the board game and other entrepreneurial stuff. Nick tries to get the best sort of solution in the moment. And not necessarily thinking about the long term, about the options and so on. So I don't think it's your fault, but I think you do have a lot of information and I think you have enough information to make a decision. And I don't think, you know, there's an old saying when I grew up, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. That we can't go through life just crossing our fingers and hoping for the best, particularly when we have very clear information. And I am sorry that this challenge of wanting to have kids is has come to be such a central part, but it's very important. It's very, very important. I mean, if, you, if you're going to have a life without kids, that's not what you want, as far as I understand it. You really, really want to become a mom. And he's telling you he's, it's not going to happen with him. So you have to have that choice. If he's some completely wonderful guy, uh, then, you know, who's staggeringly great in every way, then I could maybe understand not wanting to have kids. But if he's telling you, oh, I was never serious about having kids anyway, I have a tough time seeing that perfect wonderfulness myself. And we also do know, as we mentioned, that there's this chemical bonding that happens for women when they have, when they make love, love to men. And so I don't know. I mean, whether you should stay or whether you should go is, is not a decision that you should defer to someone else. You should really look inside your own heart. And um, he does say, and, and I listen to what Nick says, right? He says, and this is the quote, I love her enough to not deprive her of what I can now see is her greatest value, which is being a mother one day. So if you want to be a mother, he wants you to leave. If you want to be a mother, he's not going to give you children. And he has said to me very openly, and I don't think it's changed. Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. I love her enough to not deprive her of what I can now see as her greatest value, which is being a mother one day. If you want to be a mother, he's telling you, you have to go. Nick, am I wrong about that? No. Okay. So that's about as clear, I think, as anything can be made. I, and when I say clear, Diane, I certainly don't mean easy, but clear. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks, guys, very much. I appreciate your call. I appreciate your honesty, and I hope that this has been helpful. Thanks, everyone, so much for watching and listening to Free Domain Radio, the greatest philosophy show in the world. I truly believe that. Please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. And don't forget to use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Check out the podcast at fdrpodcast.com. Thanks, everyone, so much. We'll talk to you soon.